Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Firas Zahabi. You are most welcome, sir. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. I got to say, I'm a huge fan of your show. I've watched so many of your episodes and I find the way you deliver your messages to be very unique and special. Thank you very much for all your great work. Absolutely love your channel. That's very generous of you. Alhamdulillah. Thank you so much. Um, Firas, for those few who don't know who he might be, is the head trainer of the TriStar Gym in Montreal in Canada, which apparently is completely snowed under at the moment. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, um, You attended, as you know, Cord- uh, Concordia University, uh, where he graduated right. with a-, a degree in philosophy with a specialization in the ancient Greeks. And boy, does it show that you graduated in philosophy, I must say. Um, <laughs> You've uh, got a huge following on social media. Um, you can look him up on Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. And there's lots of amazing videos and podcasts featuring you. Now, you've, uh, recently he gained much respect, not least from myself, for your brilliant destruction of Stephen Fry's complaining and insulting God argument on The Dean Show, which is a must watch if you haven't already seen it. I'm really serious. It's very, very good. Today, uh, Faris will be discussing a very important question. What is truth? What is truth, Mm. sir? What is it? That's one monstrous question. And, you know, instead of going to the formal theories of of truth, you know, we have... uh, correspondence theory, pragmatism, we have, of course, um, a coherence theory. It might be, we're going to try to do it in a a bit of a funner way. Now, I want to say that, yes, I've studied Greek philosophy, but I've also studied Muslim philosophy and British empiricism, and I've studied 2,000 years of human thinking for the last 20 years. And I will tell you, I, I study about two to five hours a day on a regular basis. I'm a martial arts expert. That's what I do for a living, eight hours a day. But after that, in my free time, it's really always science, history, logic, uh, philosophy. You know, So I'm constantly uh, studying this topic for the last 20 years. So um, I'm going to try to verbalize it or put it in a way that's uh, a little bit more palatable. You know, I think that's the goal. You know, because philosophy could be boring if you do it formal. Like formal logic could be quite boring quite stale. So let's start with a a thought experiment. Okay. So first thing I'm going to do here is I'm going to grab a pen here, Paul, and I'm going to draw on my hand here. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to show you what I'm drawing my hand. I'm going to draw here a squared circle. Now I'm not drawing a square and a circle. I'm drawing on the other side of my hand. You can't see Paul. Okay. I've drawn one shape. It's a single shape. It's Mm -hmm. a square and it's a circle at the same time. Okay. Do you believe, do you believe On the other side of my hand, there is a squared circle. Uh, No. No. But why? You haven't seen the other side of my hand. Because I I know enough about the properties of squares and circles to know that they are mutually incompatible when it comes to presenting them together as a single object. 
Exactly. There's no squared circle. Actually, it would be impossible for me to draw. I think you pretty well. Okay. Yeah. So you see, you knew without even looking. Mm. That's called analytical. That's an analytical fact. Yeah. You know, I tried to convince my wife that a man can be both married and a bachelor. (laughs) She disagrees. She's not formally trained in logic. She disagrees (laughs) with me. Now, unfortunately, she's correct. You cannot both be married and a bachelor. Would you agree? No. Has there ever been a married bachelor in history? Um, no, uh, there hasn't. By definition, there couldn't be. There couldn't be. Correct. So this is what we call analytical facts. Yep. It's a fact that a square and a circle cannot. There's no squared circle. Actually, if every human being dies and the universe implodes and the universe, is, there will still be no squared circles. Actually, before human beings ever existed, there were no squared circles. It's an eternal transcendent truth. If you were in a coma and you were dreaming, there would still be no squared circles in your dreams. If you discover uh, an alien civilization trillions of light years away, there are still no squared circles and we're certain of it. These are analytical truths. And unfortunately, there are still no unmarried bachelors. There are no married bachelors. Okay. Okay. This is what we call the law of non-contradiction. Aristotle taught us, look, there's this thing called the law of non-contradiction. It cannot, the proposition cannot both be true and false at the same time. It has to be one or the other. It can't be both a square and a circle. It's analytically true. Now, Paul, if I tell you, look, I'm drawing on this side of my hand, a flamingo. Mm -hmm. Do you believe me? Um, In principle, it's certainly possible. Yes. It's certainly possible. It could be. It could not be. Oh, and no I didn't want to draw on my hand. Sorry for lying you to you, Paul. I apologize for deceiving you. It, mm. That's a contingent fact. That's an inductive fact. That's an inductive belief. So we have math and biology. Let's put it in two simple uh, categories. Math was true before me and you were born, and it's going to be true after me and you are born. Mm. Flamingos may or may not exist after me and you uh, expire. Mm-hmm. Humanity may expire and flamingos go on and they may not. It's contingent. We don't know. We have to go out into the world and see. You asked me, look, I don't know. It could be yes. It could be no. You'd have to flip your hand around and go and see it. That's what we call, we call contingent. It's a contingent truth. Okay. Now, analytical truths, we use deductive reasoning. So think math. Yep. And right. then you have inductive truths. Think biology. Is it the case that all frogs can swim? Well, it's not a mathematical, it's not a squared circle question. It's not a married bachelor question. It could be that all frogs swim and it could be that some frogs don't swim. Aristotle had to go out into the wild. He had to study every frog. And after seeing a thousand frogs and he said all these thousand frogs can swim, do you think it's time now to generalize that all frogs can swim? I'm not confident enough. A thousand is not enough. Maybe 10,000. Maybe a hundred thousand. Maybe I go and I meet another uh, scientist from across the world. And he says, all the frogs I've observed also all can swim. And I share notes with the scientific community. And we all come together and we say, look, does anybody ever see a frog that doesn't swim? And we all say, no, they all can swim. Hmm. So inductive reasoning, again, biology, contingent things, they're always predicated on a generalization. We go from specific to generalization. Now we're going to say, look, me and my scientists, scientific friends, we're starting to be really confident that all frogs can swim. Hmm. All right. We're going to write it down in this book. We're going to write down here. All frogs can swim. We're going to print it in the textbook. We're going to send it out to the universities. Everybody now is going to read that all frogs can swim. It's an inductive fact. It's not a mathematical fact. It's not a a priori fact like 
a squared circle. Like we talked about, the square has to have four sides. If it has three sides, it cannot be a square. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's not analytical, it's inductive, it's contingent. Now, it could happen in the future that there's a species of frogs that don't swim. You know, I once uh, went to a pet shop to buy a, a turtle for my kids, and there was a species of turtle that they had that doesn't swim, and I was shocked. I yeah. thought that all turtles can swim. No, mm-hmm. they told me this one, you cannot put him in a body of water because I wanted to buy him an aquarium. They're like, no, 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 he'll drown. I'm like, well, a turtle will drown. There could be, it's not illogical that in the future, there's a species of frogs that doesn't swim. Mm. Now we become, it, it becomes problematic because are we still going to name that a frog? Are we going to still, are we still going to label that animal as a frog? Or has it become that it's a prerequisite for it to be a frog? It has to know how, it has to now be able to swim. So for instance, we can call it a toad or some other name. We can come up with a new name for it because we can say, look, it's like a frog, but not quite because it doesn't swim. Mm. Who says, who draws the line here? These are inductive truths that are often defined by the most influential thinkers in our society. Now, the fatal flaw of inductive, it's called the inductive problem in philosophy, is that when we're, when we're doing inductive logic, we're always generalizing. We're always generalizing. We're looking at a specific number of, of, um, of uh, we're, taking a, we're taking a certain number of frogs and then we're generalizing that idea to all frogs. Okay, yep. So we never have the totality of evidence. To be certain that all frogs can swim, I would have to know, I would have to observe every frog that ever existed and ever will exist. Mm. Now, there are other problems to the problem of induction, but we'll leave it there. That's quite a bit already. Yep. However, it's mathematical truths. If all men are mortal, see, we started with a general proposition. All men are mortal, not some, all. And Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. If it's true that all men are mortal, and if it's true that Socrates is a man, there could be no other possibility. If you brought in a thousand logicians, they would all write the same conclusion. If it is true that all men are mortal, and it is true that Socrates is a man, then it could be no other way. He must be mortal. This is math versus biology. Okay, now all these truths are spoken about in the Quran. We'll circle to that later. One truth is more certain than the other. Mathematical truths are more certain than inductive truths, contingent truths. Now, let's go one rung below. One rung below is historical truths. Now, I hear a lot of debates online. I listen to quite a lot of debates. And it's amazing to me that people still don't understand. Uh, And very intelligent interlocutors are, are discussing historical truths. Historical truths mean nothing. Hmm. What happened to JFK? Do you know what happened to JFK? How was he killed specifically? Nobody knows what happened to JFK exactly. And we had video cameras, thousands of witnesses. Hmm. You know, on the grassy knoll, there was a man holding an umbrella. And one of the theories was that the man with the umbrella had a, using the umbrella, hiding a gun in the umbrella, shot JFK. Now, that man later came out and said, no, I'm the man with the umbrella. And he says, I was protesting. I was protesting against JFK and I decided to open an umbrella on a sunny day. Very strange thing. A man opening an umbrella on the grassy knoll on a sunny day. Now, some people still today believe that, no, that guy's lying. He came out just to basically hide in plain sight. 
Some people think there were three shots fired. Some people think there were two shots fired. Some people think it's impossible. I'm forgetting his name now. Forgive me. I just finished practice. I'm, I'm, I'm long, but um, the man that was... Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he was, he was killed immediately <clears throat> soon after. He was assassinated soon after. Some people believe that it wasn't even him. There's so many possibilities. 9-11 is a highly documented event. The firemen that were on site said, now, I don't believe this, okay? So please, no, no conspiracy theories. I don't believe. They said they heard bombs. When the building was coming down, they heard bombs. Bang, 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 bang. They heard explosions. Now, I think it could be, and I don't want to delve into conspiracy theories here. I don't know what happened on 9-11. It could be that there were bombs, and it could be that it was just one floor hitting into another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, they say, no, it was falling at free fall speeds. There are many arguments. Yeah. We still don't know. It's a historical fact. 9-11 is a historical fact, not a scientific fact. It's a historical fact. 9-11, there was Building 7 collapsed. People till today argue over what happened to Building 7. Now, to make it a scientific fact, we would have to repeat the process all over again you know, as a morbid idea as it is. Now, of course, we wouldn't use human beings. I'm, I'm talking about colliding a, a, a jet robotically, of course, into an empty building and seeing, will the building fall? Will there, why, how would you explain what people think they heard? Mm -hmm. You cannot repeat ancient history. There are too many unknown variables. Ancient history is full of biases and mysteries. When the Quran tells you, and we, all those who say they know what happened to Christ are in full of doubt. There, Allah is telling you that historical facts you know historians say oh it's a fact that jesus was crucified yeah historical fact which is the weakest type of fact how many historical facts are untrue many over time will be overturned new evidence tomorrow we can have new evidence that overturns what happened in jfk you know for instance i'll give you a great for instance uh, uh, uh bonaparte oh yeah uh bonaparte oh, what's his first name again i can't believe i'm forgetting Napoleon Bonaparte, excuse me, I'm low blood sugar. I just finished wrestling for three hours. Gosh. Napoleon Bonaparte, after uh, I, don't, I don't know how many hundreds of years he was dead, they sold his hair to one of, uh, there, there's a collector of uh, Bonaparte, uh, uh, a famous collector. He loves uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, collects everything about Napoleon Bonaparte. He bought his hair in an auction. He bought okay. Napoleon's hair in an auction. Very macabre, yeah. And then they tested his hair and they found out, hey, you know, he was poisoned. Rewrite history. Napoleon Bonaparte was poisoned. He didn't die from a, from a malady. No, 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 no. This was a deliberate assassination. Now, is it Napoleon's hair? I don't know. Do you know? Were you there when they cut it? These are things that are, they're always question marks and unknown variables. History, history is written by the champions. History, let me ask you something, uh, uh, Paul. What is a rumor? A rumor is an unverified belief. History is full of rumors. You know, they did a study on Twitter. Rumors spread faster than truths. True. Just because it's widely held and widely believed doesn't make it a scientific fact or a logical fact. You earlier knew that I didn't draw a squared circle. You earlier said, hey, it may be a flamingo on your hand, may not be. A historical, a historical fact is even lower than that. Mm -hmm. A historical fact is almost meaningless. If you want me to base my beliefs on his, on history, you're asking me, if, if you're telling me, you know, the Quran is telling you, base your religion on the most secure 
and trustworthy thing. And we're going to get to it. We haven't even gotten to it yet. Not on the loosest, weakest. If you build your faith on something weak, you know, uh, Descartes said it beautifully. He said, look, if I'm building an edifice, a building, I'm building a structure, the first foundational block must be indestructible. Yeah. If I build an edifice, a structure up high to the sky, if the first block is not the strongest, it'll collapse. Once there's a crack in the foundation, the whole thing will come down. We have to find an undoubtable truth. We have to have contact with naked truth, direct contact with truth. Islam is about direct contact with truth. We're going to talk about, we're going to get slowly there. In the Bible, Paul tells us, if Christ didn't die and wasn't resurrected, your faith is in vain. All your prayers, all your sacrifices, all your fasting, throw it by the wayside. Now, I think he's technically wrong there, okay? But that's a different topic. Now, he's telling you, look, you have to figure out what happened to Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. This is what we call abduction. You know, Sherlock Holmes, you guys are big Sherlock Holmes fans, I assume. I don't want to generalize here. I don't want to generalize here. But he lived just down the road in Baker Street. He's just a mile away from down the road from here, yeah. <laughs> He's using abduction, Sherlock Holmes. Now, Sherlock Holmes might walk into a room and say, look, I know the murder weapon is in that second drawer right there. How does he know? Well, he looked around the room. He deduced certain things. This is abduction now. And he says, look, it, murder weapons is in the second drawer and the butler did it. You know how it works, right? You're quite familiar with Charlotte Crumbs. Absolutely. You're asking me now to use abduction. Now, abduction is even lower. It's even lower than induction. You're asking me to found my beliefs on something weak. The Quran is telling you no. Go back to the fitra. Go back to the natural disposition, the natural religion. Now, I'll tell you something. There are people who believe in God. I don't believe in God. I know God. Hmm. My, I've went from belief to certainty and every Muslim and you can't be Muslim with belief. That's okay. It's halal. It's not wrong. You're a believer. Alhamdulillah. And we should talk about what believer means actually, mm-hmm. because I'll, I'll tell you anyways, that's a different topic. I don't want to go on a tangent, but you can get to knowledge, naked truth, direct knowledge. So we said there's mathematical facts. I'm, I'm using math here as a, as an analogy. Okay. What? We, we say the word analytic or a priori, then a posteriori or contingent truths. Or a, 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 a synthetic a priori statements. We yes. can, but we're not, we're not going to go down there. Okay, that's a different topic. That's a different topic. A different yeah. topic. Interesting topic, but a different one. Yeah. I want to keep it simple, crystal clear. That's the goal. Yeah, here, yeah. To keep it crystal, crystal, crystal clear. And then we have these historical truths. Basically, you get to do the scientific experiment, but you never get to observe it directly and you can never repeat it. Don't forget, history, sorry, excuse me, science, when you ask, when you put a room of philosophers, elite philosophers in a room, science, philosophers of science, you put them in a room and you ask them, what is this thing called science? What is this thing, natural science? What is it? We all agree at the end that science, and I challenge anybody in the world, any PhD, in the philosophy of science, challenge me to say what I'm about to say next is incorrect. I challenge anybody in the world, not the layman on the side who's read, read a book or two. No, no, no. Bring me a PhD to disagree with me. Bring me a world-class philosopher of science and you tell me what I'm about to say next is wrong. I'm going to give you a proposition. And this proposition, we have consensus. We have consensus. All of us agree. Mm. All of us, all elite philosophers. This is what we call small circle philosophy. Only the elite 
thinkers got to this level. Most of them, they got, they like philosophy to a certain degree. They never went to, they never got to black belt. They never got to this level. Okay. This is what we call small circle. Science is the faith that the future will behave like the past. Science is a type of faith that the future will behave like the past. The inventor of the scientific method, the modern scientific method, Imam al Hassan, uh, excuse me, my, uh, my blood sugar is low. Um, al Hassan. Uh, yes, I, I, I know you mean as well. I've forgotten his name as well. Ibn al Haytham. Exactly. I'm forgetting, no, his, name. A Muslim I'm forgetting yeah, his name. Yeah. A, Muslim, a Muslim scholar, he invented them. Yeah, he yeah, said, yeah. look, see for yourself. Here are the parameters. Al-Haytham. Ibn yeah. Al-Haytham. Excuse me. Yes. Here are the parameters. Here's how I did it. Here was my hypothesis. Here's the test. Yeah. I tried to remove all subjectivity. Here's the test. It's repeatable. You see for yourself. He famously wrote, see for yourself. That means you could do it at home yourself in yeah. your lab. Verify what I did. Yeah. And we observe nature. Nature has these patterns and regularities. And we say, look, we've noticed these patterns and regularities, and we predict that it will happen again in the future. That's what science is. Science boils down to the faith that the future will depend, will behave like the past. I challenge anybody in the world to tell me that this is not the foundation of science. Now, for instance, you see the sun rise every morning and you see it set every night. Yes or no? Yes. And you've seen that so many times and now you have a faith that tomorrow it will rise and tomorrow it will set and you've never seen it any other way. Yep. You have this faith. This regularity is so automatic. It's so believed because your ancestors saw it also and it never changed. And it's such a it's such an easy thing to believe because nobody questions it. Tomorrow will be just another day where the sun rises. Now, suppose you have all your faculties, but I erase your memory. I erase your memory about sunrises and sunsets. Everything else about you is the same. Mm-hmm. Tomorrow, when you wake up and you see the sunrise, you're going to be shocked. You're going to be amazed. Mm-hmm. And when you're going to see it set, you're going to be amazed. And then after a few hundred uh, cycles, you're going to be like, hey, it's just another day. I expect it to rise tomorrow and I expect it to set there is no logical necessity for it to rise and set. This is yeah. also in the Quran. The Quran tells you, see the night and the day, the cycle of night and day. For those who think there's a sign in there for you. Because ultimately, and I'm going to make this point later, inshallah, all beliefs, all either analytical or contingent, the ones we talked about, math and biology, mm-hmm. are all a type of religious faith. Truth is a religious experience. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Naked truth is a type of religious experience, like it or not. That's why I always tell people there's no such thing as an atheist. I don't believe in atheists. All atheists have a God, all of them. If you sit me in a room with an atheist and let me cross-examine him, I will find you what God he believes in. Mm. So, for instance, I asked them, like, you know, what's the process of these cycles? They're going to say nature. Now, when I say nature, I'm asking you, is nature a thing out there? No, nature, look. If I ask you, what is nature? You're going to say, look, look at that rose over there. That's nature. Okay. Well, if I kill all, if I destroy all roses in the world, is nature destroyed? You're going to say, no, nature is also that river. It's also the water cycle. It's also the stars in the sky. It's also uh, what's in the earth. It's also how the volcanic uh, uh, cycles. The word nature is just a way for us. It's, a, it's what we call in philosophy. It's a universal. 
It's a way for us to address the collective of things. It's made of particular things. I look at a plant. I look at the, 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 the clouds in the sky. Mm. All these things. When I, when I want to refer to this collective, I say the word nature. Now, nature is not a force out there. That's why they, we mistakenly take the word nature as, as something being a force. Mm. It is not a force. Nature is something we refer to is a category. It's, it's a universal. Philosophers, we say, nominalist philosophers, Muslims, we are nominalists. No, it or not, we are nominalists. Nature is not a thing out there. Nature is a category in here. Yeah. It's a projection of the mind. It's a way we address the world. So when I ask you what creates the water cycle, you're going to point to another God. You're going to say, oh, there's evaporation, there's gravity, etc." Gravity, again, is another force that's never observed in nature. What you observed was a pattern. That pattern, you inferred a force. So for instance, I'll give you a great for instance. Okay, so if I kick a soccer ball, the soccer ball was still, and I came to it and I kicked it. And, and Isaac, said, Isaac Newton said, an object will stay at rest until a force is acted upon it. We all know this uh, three laws of motion. And that one was pretty easy. You know, I think everybody would agree. The genius of Isaac Newton was that he said, an object will stay in motion until a force acts upon it. Because when you kick a soccer ball, it doesn't go on forever. It goes, it, it, it hits air resistance. We didn't know it was, it was slowing down and hitting the ground because of air resistance. Isaac Newton had to figure that out. Why is the soccer ball not going on into eternity, moving forward into eternity? He said, you know what? There must be air resistance. There is a pull from the earth, the mass of the earth, but he, didn't never, he never observed gravity. No. He inferred gravity. Okay, this is, again, in, in philosophy of science, we have consensus. Gravity is inferred. Gravity is not a force out there. It is not a force out there, a god out there, a ghost out there, a demon out there that is moving things around in the universe. No, 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 no. We saw things moved, and then we inferred a force. We saw motion. We saw patterns and regularities in nature, and then we inferred a force. Mm-hmm. Now, in Islam, I really believe that a, a, a highly educated Muslim and, and Muslim philosophy, not theology, philosophy, because the difference between theology and philosophy is theologians start with the idea of God. They already believe in God. They already believe in God. That's theology. Yeah. Philosophy philosophy of religion, we have to prove God and then we'll do theology. Mm-hmm. Now, la ilaha illallah, there are no gods except God, Allah, is philosophy of religion. It started with the negation. It didn't start with acceptance. It started with a doubt. We reject all these gods, nature, randomness, gravity. These are all gods that are not out there. If you read Kant, you read Ghazali, you realize they are projections of the mind. Now, these are not my personal philosophies, okay? British empiricists also came to this exact same conclusion. They came to this exact same conclusion. Atheists agree with us that gravity is not out there. It's a pattern and regularity, and we bookmarked that pattern and regularity, and we called it gravity. That word gravity, over time, for those who are not experts in epistemology, they came to believe it as a force. And I consider that to be an idolatry. It's a minor shirk. It's a minor, it's a type of idolatry. You know, in the Quran, it says, the Quran, it says, 
see that bird in the sky flapping its wings? None yeah. but Allah holds it up. Yeah. Now, what does that mean? If I took a bird, the Arabs knew, if I took a bird, I broke its wing. It's not flying anymore. How come Allah is not holding it up? They knew that if you, if there was a gust of wind, it would lift the sand. They knew that a wind lifts sand. What Allah is trying to, what, what the Quran is saying is all these patterns and regularities. There are no forces out there. There are no other deities. There's only one force. Every motion in every pattern and regularity you observe is created by Allah. There is only one force. There is only one force. Now, I love how atheists try to lecture us about Occam's razor. They're, the, they're guilty. They are guilty. Muslims, Muslims are, should, be, should be the masters of Occam's razor. Islam is telling you, there are no deities save this one God. We couldn't, Muslims, skeptics. Ghazali was such a skeptic, he didn't believe anything. He said, you know, Ghazali said, isn't it weird? All the Christians are, they're born Christian, they die Christian, the Muslims are born. Aren't we indoctrinated? It's all doctrine. He, he asked these questions. There's a point of doubt. If you're, if you're an expert in doubt, you doubt so much. You doubt existence. You, you doubt the I. You doubt the self. The, even the, what is the self? You know, uh, David Hume said, look, there is no I. There is no self. We're, maybe we'll get to that later in this conversation. But philosophers, we can't even put, we can't even put the ego in a test tube. We cannot put the I. What is the, what is the essence of something? You know, if you... What is the essence of a human being? We cannot even define it. It seems that the whole dunya is subjective. Until, except this one thing, skeptics, we find this one thing. And when we graduate to this one thing, oftentimes we'll be called mystics. Hmm. There's this one thing now where doubt is proof. You can no longer doubt. Doubt actually becomes a type of proof. You've come now to this point of awareness. This point of awareness this death of all paradigms is simply expressed as la ilaha illallah. And you have direct, you have direct experience with this. This is what the Quran is telling you. The Quran is a reminder of your natural born religion. Yeah. Now I want to remind you of a time before you were born where you didn't know your name. You had no idea of your ego. They say the ego is developed up about one year of age. And you didn't know the dunya. You didn't taste anything sweet or warm or cold. You had no experiences with the dunya. You only had this awareness. This is very early in your development. You were born with this fitra. You were incubated in this fitra. And the Quran is telling you, go back. You know, in the, in the Bible, there's many things that are argued. Did Jesus say, did not say. I think one is very possible that he said. He says, look, be born again. What does it mean, be born again? Go back to the fitra. Go back to your natural religion. And this is the next point we're going to talk about, inshallah. Intuition. We're going to graduate from historical truth to inductive truths to mathematical truths, a prior truths. And we're going to touch finally intuition, the mother of all truths. And actually, intuition, it, it sustains all the other truths. All the other truths depend on intuition. So we're going to talk now about uh, the tabula rasa. Okay. John Locke said, look, you, Paul, are a blank slate. You're this virgin sheet of paper. Anything in this, your mind is this virgin sheet of paper. 
If you tasted honey, now you know about honey. Let's write down honey. Paul now knows about sweetness, honey, liquids. Then Paul ate an apple. Okay, now he knows the color red. He knows the crunch of an apple. He knows the sound an apple makes when you crunch into it. Okay, Paul, now today he rode a bike. Okay, he knows about pedaling. He knows about turning left and right. All this information now is being written on the tabula rasa. This is your mind, okay? And now we're going to talk about your tabula rasa. Once anything on the tabula rasa had to go through your senses, John Locke says. So if you were blind your whole life, you would never have anything about the color red on your tabula rasa. Your tabula rasa has no experience with the color red. If you were a supremely intelligent being and you were blind, no matter how much I tell you about the color red, you can never imagine it. To you, this is an alien subject. It is unknown and you cannot imagine it. Yeah. Now, you, Paul, you've seen the color red. You've seen a man. You've seen men. You've seen human beings. You've seen reindeer. You've seen reindeer, yes or no? On television, you, yes. On television. <laughs> I know they like. Yeah. Have you seen this? Have you ever seen a sled? Yes. Have you ever seen a bird fly in the sky? Absolutely. Okay. These are all things you experienced. They're all in your tabula rasa. They were in the senses, sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing. And now they're all on your tabula, tabula rasa. Now, once they're in the mind, Paul, you can jumble them up as much as you want. Now you can invent Santa Claus. You saw a man. You saw a bird fly. You saw a sled. You saw a reindeer. Now you can jumble up Santa Claus. Does Santa Claus exist? Could be, could not be. Things that are jumbled up in the mind may or may not exist. However, the simple experiences have to exist. The color red has to exist. Man has to exist. Reindeer have to exist. Flight has to exist. If you were blind, Paul, you would never know the color red, no matter how logical you are. You need it to have it. You need to have it in the senses. Yep. In the Quran, it says Abraham, he saw the stars. And he said, this is my God. And then the star said, and he says, no, my God doesn't set. Then he saw the moon. The, the light was even greater. And he said, this is my God. Now, again, I believe he was doing this in jest. Maybe it's because I'm, I'm too uncomfortable with thinking that Abraham salam, was ever uh, a worshiper of stars or moons. I think he was doing it in jest because the pagans worship stars, moons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. a separate topic. Okay? Yeah. I think he was doing it in jest. Okay? So, but it's in the Quran. Yeah, yeah. He says, I see the moon. I worship the moon. The moon's light is even greater. I worship the moon. Then the moon sets and says, no. Then he sees the sun and the sun's light is even greater. He says, I worship, I worship the sun. And then the sun set and he says, no. He realized that he was jumbling up. He had this idea of God, this fitra, this innate belief of God. And then he saw these wondrous things in the world and he joined them together with God. Just like the Greeks say, Zeus is the God of lightning. They took the belief of Allah and they jumbled it with the idea of lightning because lightning comes from above and it's so powerful and scary and, 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 and marvelous. They connected ideas together. That's why when I, when I speak to an atheist, I tell them, you already believe in Allah. You already believe in God. I'll prove it to you now. I want you to imagine in your mind 
the R7-1. I want you to look at it in your mind. Not the, not the letter R, not the number seven, the object I'm referring to. I want you to flip it upside down. I want you to turn it around. I want you to picture a yellow version of it now. Now picture a blue version of it. Everybody's wondering, what's this R7-1? I have no experience of R. I never went out in the world. What's he referring to? Because I made it up. There's no such thing as R7-1. I'm not, I'm not this sound I made, R7-1, is not labeling it to anything in the dunya. Nothing. I made it up. If it's that's how a blind man feels when you talk to him about the color red. He's like, what is this guy talking about? I've never seen an R7-1. I've, I want you to see what a blind man experiences. He doesn't know what you're, when you say red, he doesn't understand what you're saying. Okay. Now, Ibn Tufal actually gives a beautiful allegory of, about this, but this is a, maybe a story for another day. When I talk to you about Allah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You say, I reject this idea. You want to reject an idea, but you confirmed it by telling me you don't believe in it. You, already, you didn't say, what do you think? What's Allah? What's God? What is this thing, God? No, this is not your reaction. No, 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 no. You told me, no, you know what? I don't like this idea. I haven't seen it. I, haven't, I want to put it in a test tube before I believe in it. Yeah, when you say that. Now, here's, here's what Ghazali would tell John Locke. Remember, every idea we had in the tabula rasa was once in your senses. Here's the, the fatal flaw atheists makes. They say, look, where is it in the tabula rasa, Allah? Where is God? I want to hold his hand. I want to touch. I want to feel. But here's what Ghazali would tell John Locke. He says, what about this tabula rasa? It's also a compounded idea. You took virgin sheet of paper. That's something from the dunya. That's something from the world you saw. And now you mingled it with our consciousness. You mingled it again with the fitrah. The tabula rasa itself was once in the senses. What is the tabula rasa without the white sheet of paper? What are you referring to? He just admitted to you. He just admitted to you what every atheist should admit to himself. Within us all, there's this point of awareness. And this point of awareness is actually not within us. We are within it. We are within it. The mind, not my mind, the mind, consciousness, not the contents of consciousness. This is where Abraham salam discovered his fault. He was worshiping the contents of consciousness. And he realized, no, this is, this is nested in consciousness, as am I nested in consciousness. You know, I ask, I ask uh, atheists, materialist philosophers, prove to me materialism. Because I believe that materialism, I, I believe that all our beliefs in physical world is also another deity. Nobody's ever proved the physical world. Okay, if you're familiar with a great thinker, English thinker, George Berkeley, you should familiarize yourself with him. Yep. Idealism. I, I'll tell you, excuse me. I'm going to tell, I'm going to throw out another challenge to anybody who can refute idealism. Idealism is considered in philosophy irrefutable. It is irrefutable. Hard to accept because it's so, it's so, I don't know how to say, but it's so, special it's so shocking 
that people have an emotional reaction. People who, who swear that they're, they're logical human beings, that they only follow the evidence. Once you take them here, they're going to like, they're going to have an emotional reaction. It's too powerful. It's too emotionally stimulating for people to even look at it. So anyways, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but I can, t- I can guarantee you there's never been a human being on the face of the earth that has refuted uh, idealism. Idealism is considered irrefutable. You can take that to the bank. Okay. Now we're talking about materialist philosophers. They say, look, ask materialist philosophers, show me how physical things exist. How is the mind dependent on the brain? Because they say the brain, if you tinker with it, it changes the mind. I say, no, I say the brain is dependent on the mind. They say, no, the the mind is dependent on the brain. We have this feud. So I tell them, okay, prove to me that the mind is dependent on the brain. They say, well, look, the brain is physical. And if I tinker with it, it changes the mind. Now I say, prove to me that the brain is physical. There is no way to prove that the brain is physical. Let me give you a, 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 a glaring uh, example of this, a glaring example that I think I have to quote. So many thinkers came to this conclusion. Okay. It's not me. Okay. I'm not the brilliant guy who figured all this out. Not at all. I'm far from it. I think Berkeley gave the best example and I'm going to use his example because I think he said it best. Picture a triangle. Okay. Berkeley asks us, picture a triangle. Now remember, triangle is mathematics. It's it's Euclidean geometry. It's been 2,000 years and nobody's ever found a flaw in Euclidean geometry. A triangle has to have two sides, excuse me, three sides, three corners. The the inside of the angles have to add up to 180 degrees. We know exactly what a triangle is. It's purely objective, correct? Now, I want you to think of a triangle, but without any subjectivity, no color. Can you do it? No. It's impossible. It's always a green triangle, a blue triangle, a black triangle, a white triangle. You can't get away from subjectivity. Now, remove what's subjective about it. What are you left with? Ideas in the mind. There's nothing left. So you're saying... You're calling something that's objective a color. Sorry, you're calling something that's subjective a color. The, the, the triangle is made of a color, right? The green is subjective. And then you're superimposing your objective ideas on that subjective things. So even objectivity, even objectivity is reliant on subjectivity. Mm-hmm. Now let's define objectivity and subjectivity to our, our, our I know you, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the differences, but Descartes said it best, so I'm going to quote him. Think of an orange. If I were to weigh an orange, you and me would come to the same conclusion. If we measured its circumference, me and you would come to the same conclusion. Yes or no? Yes. Now, if I asked you, is an orange tasty? You would say what? Maybe yes, maybe no. Mm. That's subjective. It depends on you. It could have been otherwise. It could be an answer yes. It could be an answer no. Remember, we talked about math and then biology and one is necessary and one is contingent. One may or may not be. All your necessary truths are actually dependent on these subjective Mm. elements. So every time we find something with a doubt, we remove it. Skeptics, we become mystics. When we've gone so far that we've gotten to a place where there's no more removing, you can't now. There's just this awareness. That's why I always tell people, Allah is not something you see with your eye. Mm. 
Allah is what gives you seeing. In science, they call it the hard problem of consciousness. They wash their hands of it. They say, once we get here, we stop. This is the hard problem. We have no idea. We give up. They call it the hard problem of consciousness. The easy problem, oh, the wirings in your brain. The electrodes, the blood flow, the gray matter, one brain state transforming into another. That's the easy part, the flesh. You know, the Quran talks about them. They say they only know the appearance of things. They never think about their, themselves. They never think about themselves. Now, my, uh, <clears throat> my philosophy is popular for making things simple. Okay, so I'm going to try to make things extra simple. We're going to talk about intuition now, right. if you don't mind. Please. We're going to, instead of giving a, a boring lecture, I'm going, to give, I'm going to give you a thought experiment, inshallah. I think that thought experiments are, are much better than uh, logical arguments. Suppose we're going to build a Paul 2.0. We're going to build a robot. Okay. Humor me for a second. Instead of bones, he's going to have steel as a skeleton. Instead of skin, he's going to have sheet metal. Instead of a heart, he's going to have a pump. Instead of blood, he's going to have an oil that goes through his system. Instead of a brain, he's going to have a computer. Instead of an eye, he's going to have a camera. Instead of an ear, he's going to have a recorder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Much better. Now, my, now Paul 2.0, he has a program. It's if this, then that. Now, he's studying the blood and flesh, Paul. He's following you around. Paul 2.0, robotic Paul, he's following you every day. And he studies you. And he sees if Paul wakes up, then he drinks coffee. 99 times out of 100. So when I wake up, 99 times out of 100, I run the algorithm. If it 8 a.m., then, then coffee. Hmm. If between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., coffee. He figures out an algorithm. If this, then that. If this, then that. If it rains, Paul gets an umbrella. So Paul 2.0, if this, then that. He puts on his umbrella. He's following you every day and he's copying you every day and he's getting more and more like you every day till the point where we can't differentiate between you and him. He's so sophisticated, Paul. Paul 2.0 is so sophisticated. His algorithm for if this, then that is so sophisticated. It even makes exceptions for when you're in a bad mood. If Paul is like this, then that. He figured you out so well. He's copying you so well. Now, Paul 2.0 is so interested in knowing everything about you. He's following you. He's copying you. He's doing everything exactly like you. Is Paul 2.0 human? No. <clears throat> Why? But he's exactly like you in every way. He's still not human. He's only if this, then that. Now, here's another question I want to ask you. Does, does Paul 2.0 have any subjective experience? Does no. he know the taste of an orange? He, he, he followed you around. He said, if, you know, he knows more about you than you know about yourself. Did you know, Paul, that if it's a rainy day in February and it's between this and that temperature, you go to the fridge and you eat an orange. You don't even know that about yourself. But Paul 2.0 says, you know what? The statistical probability that Paul's going to go to an or get an orange right now. He knows everything mm -hmm. about you. And if this, then that. And he goes and he gets that orange and he eats it. And you're eating an orange in your apartment and he's eating an orange in his apartment. And he just knows that, hey, this is what happened in the past. And I predict it's going to happen again in the future. He's using the scientific method to understand everything about you. Yet you, when you eat an orange, you say, hmm, delicious. 
So he repeats, when Paul eats an orange, if this, then mm. that. He says, mm, delicious. Now, he has no understanding of what delicious. He has no subjective experience of delicious. Yes or no? Absolutely correct. This robot only is, appears to be Paul. He's only Paul in appearance. Now, one day there's a lightning strike and you you jump in fear. There's a powerful lightning strike. You were walking in the street and it's raining and whew, powerful lightning strike. It strikes fear in your heart. Mm. And Paul 2.0 sees you and he says, look, lightning, if lightning strike at this many decibels at this distance, then Paul shakes like this. He didn't experience your fear. Did he experience your fear? No. Nope. No, he didn't. He said, if this, then that. So every time there's a lightning strike at that amount of decibels, at that distance, at this, he shakes. He doesn't know why you shake. He has no idea, but he shakes. He stutters in fear. He has no subjective experience. This is very important. This is a crucial point here. The Quran tells us that when you see lightning, you're filled with hope and or fear. Why? Fear because you might die from lightning. Hope because it's going to rain and your crops will grow. Some people, when they see lightning, they'll come to tears. They're happy. Hey, we're going to survive this season. Inshallah. Lightning will strike fear in some and hope in others. Mm. That sensation of hope and fear, Allah is asking you to reflect on it in the Quran. He says, look, you were dust. You were dust. And behold, now you're human. Soon after you become a human. Now you said to me, that robot is not human. I'm asking you, he's also dust. You know, this science tells us we're all stardust. The elementary part, the, everything in the universe, all tangible things are stardust. Ultimately, we all come from exploding stars. We are dust. The Quran says we are dust. The scientist, the atheist tells us, atheist materialist tells us we are dust. We agree. We're in agreement. Mm -hmm. Are we not? Yep. Does anybody say, oh, no, we're not dust? We all agree that we come from dust. The robot is also dust, just like you. Yes or no? Yes. Ultimately, he's things that came out of the earth or from comets out of the sky. Ultimately, we all came, come from a byproduct of the sun or stars, exploding stars. The table of elements are stardust. We are all made up of table of elements. That's the appearance of things. You know that that, you know, if I, if I have a, what do you call those? Uh, a ventriloquist act. You know, the, the guy who sits up, puts a puppet on his hand. Mm -hmm. uh, he's talking with his lips and he could fool the kids, right? And the kids will think, hey, that puppet has a mind. We project our mind onto this robot, this, this Paul 2.0. We think, hey, he's conscious, but he's not. He's really, if this, then that. The Quran is telling you, look, you went from dust to human. You agreed that that robot was not human earlier on. Correct? Correct. Something is missing. What is this thing that he's missing? Now, Allah tells us in the Quran, he created Adam from dust and then he blows, he breathes into him his ruh. That ruh, that consciousness, that thing inside us, you have direct experience. You're not using logic. You're not using the scientific method. You're definitely not using the historical method <laughs> to know about your own consciousness. Now, for instance, I'll give you another for instance now to make this even more clear. Paul 2.0, he invents a, a nano robot. 
it's such a small, tiny robot. It actually goes into your ear. It seeps through the canal. It, it's so tiny. It can pass between the, the, the smallest cells of your body. And it, this little nano robot goes into the brain. This is a Leibniz example. And it observes everything about your brain. It sees blood flow. It sees neurons firing. It sees gray matter. It sees the, the, the sequences. It's relaying all this information back to Paul 2.0. But Paul 2.0 never sees consciousness, no matter how logical he is. And don't forget, he's downloaded all the logical rules of, of the history of all logicians. He knows he's a master of logic greater than any human. He's deep blue. Okay. Deep blue, the, mm. the, the program that beat uh, Gasparov. Yeah. He has every logical argument that has ever been uttered. He has every scientific, he has the database of every scientific experiment that's ever been published. Yet still, Paul 2.0 knows nothing about your consciousness. Nothing. He needs intuition to have experience of consciousness. He has no intuition. He has no ruh. Ruh is, is transcendent. It is outside the test tube. It is beyond logic. Even logic cannot encompass Allah. You know, some people say, I've heard, even Muslims say that Allah could only do what is logically possible. I personally disagree. I think Allah is ab above logic. We'll talk about this another time, inshallah. Maybe we'll have time later on. But there is no principle of sufficient reason, PSR, that encompasses Allah is above logic. And I'll explain to you why later this is the case. Your logic cannot grasp Allah. Your logic can only point to Allah. And I believe there, you know, the, the, the Muslim thinkers say there are two ways to Allah. One, logic. You study the world. Yes, there's logic and you can point to Allah and you can say, look, the world, it, it would be an infinite regress. You, there are logical arguments. There are Quran arguments that hold water. But this is the secondary way to know Allah. There is a primary way to know Allah. There is a primary way. And Allah points to it in the Quran. He tells you, you are from dust. And behold, now you are human. Now in philosophy, we have this uh, uh, fallacy we sometimes refer to as mystery, therefore magic. If it's a mystery, it must be magic. This is not the logical leap we're making. You know why? It, it's the logical leap that a robot, Paul 2.0, would make. Because he's trying to use logic and scientific experiment to figure out everything about you. He doesn't have direct experience with consciousness. Allah is asking you, about something you know directly. You told me earlier that that robot was not, dust is not human. What is human? So, you know what? If I made a, if I made a, a 1 million Paul 2.0s, there are a dime a dozen, and I crushed one, and I cubed one, and I destroyed it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have a funeral for him. Nothing special about him. There's another one. However, there are billions of human beings, 8 billion. If I killed one, you would be very upset with me. Why? I destroyed something that's irreplaceable. Mm. Not the body. There's something else. There's, a, there's not, not the dust. What is that something else? I desecrated something so sacred that if I, if I killed the organic Paul 2.0, it would be very different than if I killed the, excuse me, the, the, the organic Paul than if I killed the Paul 2.0. Allah is telling you, you have this direct experience it's not mystery therefore magic no 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 you have access to this naked truth direct access this light i know allah he calls himself the light in the ayat al-nur 
Ghazali goes quite deep into this. The, Allah is the light. Mm. Now, there's a lot of different tafsir. I'm not an ex, I don't want to give an expert tafsir. I'm going to rely on Ghazali here. But the light is also reflected. The light is also reflected. Now, you know, the light is a nook. It's in a lamp and in a nook. They say the nook is the, the chest of the believer and the lamp is the heart of the believer and Allah is the light inside the heart. And the lamp, the, the, the glass of the lamp, it, it reflects that light. The purer your heart, the more you reflect the light of Allah. This is a, a, an analogy for your consciousness. Your consciousness is a borrowed light. Allah shines his, this is what Ibn Tufal he, he teaches. Allah shines his consciousness and we reflect it. Hmm. We are not, we are not, we are not one with God. We are not gods. We have no share in divinity. This is clear. However, we are, we are observers, eyewitnesses of the light of Allah. This consciousness, let me give you a, 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 a Thomas Huxley example. Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog. Hmm. Darwin's bulldog. Not an atheist, an, an agnostic. And for this reason, he's an agnostic. For this reason. He says, look, if I rub a lamp and a magic genie came out, that's the equivalent of this physical brain agitating itself and the mind come out. They're equivalent. They're equivalent. That's why he said, I can't be atheist. He cannot be atheist. He cannot say, he's going to say, look, I can't talk about what I don't know. That's it. I'm going agnostic. There's a fitra that you have direct access to that the Quran, when it talks to you about it, if you read the Quran in this light, you have a whole different interpretation. Sujood, when a, when a Muslim puts his head on the floor, and it's Abraham does it in the Bible, salam, Jesus salam, does it in the Bible, and of course, all the prophets did it. This is, an, this is a physical expression of la ilaha illallah. I, when, you, when you prostrate, your head is lower than the heart. Ghazali tells us your head is now lower than the heart. Now, not the heart, not the lump of flesh. That innate sense, that thing that robot 2.0, Paul 2.0 doesn't have, is a gift from Allah. It's a direct connection to Allah. You're saying, Allah, I didn't deduce you logically. I didn't scientifically grasp you. I didn't put you in a test tube and now I know about you. No. Even the most layman, even the man who never understood logic, he knew about Allah. It's a grace. You know about Allah via grace, via mercy. The greatest thing, the greatest gift you ever had was the fitrah. And this is why Allah is, 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 is Al-Rahman Al-Rahim. This is a mercy. You have the answer to your test already. You have it. That's why I tell people, I don't believe in atheists. You only take this fitrah and you project it somewhere else. You always mix it with somewhere else. If you let me cross-examine you long enough, I will show you you believe in some type of faulty God. The Quran is telling you, look, you already have the answer. Don't partner the answer with anything out there. And the height of arrogance is to say man is Allah. Mm. I'm going to associate myself with Allah. I'm going to say I'm one with Allah. This is the height of arrogance. Now you've made yourself the furthest from Allah. Because the Pharaoh, he said he was a god, the Pharaoh. This is the worst because it, you're, you're at the polar opposite of where you should be. You didn't create this fitra. 
You didn't grasp it with your logic. You didn't figure it out. You didn't solve a mystery. You're not the Sherlock Holmes who figured it out. No, it's an open secret. Every human being knows. The word kufar means, hey, you covered this belief. This is what originally means. You yep. covered this belief, this innate belief. That's when people tell me, how do you believe, why do you believe in God? Innate. Yeah. Everywhere the Quran says, every, everywhere you look, you'll see the face of Allah. When all have perished, there will remain the face of Allah. Ghazali, he called, if you understand what this verse says, Ghazali, he calls you al-wasilin, those who have arrived. Those who have arrived. Who are those who have arrived? Well, <laughs> it's a bit of a complicated story, but let's get into, let's get into it. Let's talk about the essence, the essence of something. Aristotle said, look at all these knives. They all have one thing in common. That one thing is their essence. If I draw you a knife on a piece of paper, Paul, you're going to be like, hey, you know what? I noticed that's a knife. Why? It's a piece of paper. It's a drawing. It has the essence of a knife. It represents knives. It shares in the essence of knives. Now, if I take a knife out of plastic or wood or steel or whatever, you're like, that's a knife. Now, if I change its essence, if I take a steel knife and I melt it down and I turn it into a fork, and you're like, it's no longer a knife. It's lost its essence. The same bundle of metal is no longer a knife. You recognize that the essence of knife is no longer in that object. It's no longer a knife. You agree? Yep, absolutely. A knife is a concept in the mind and it's a thing out there in the world. Hmm. Because there are many knives, if I told you, how much does a knife weigh? You'd be like, that depends. That's subjective. It could be this weight, that weight. It actually could be any weight. If I told you how long is a knife? Well, it all depends. It's subjective. Again, because I'm referring, when I say knife, I'm referring to a concept. I'm referring to a type of ghost. There are objects out there that we label knives, but knife is the essence of knife is really a concept that's dependent on our minds. Mm-hmm. Now, how about this? What if I told you I had a divine knife? There's only one knife like this in the world. There are no other knives. There will never be another knife. There will never be another knife, Paul. And this knife is never changing. It doesn't change. It doesn't go through stages. It is the way it is. It always was that way and it will forever be that way. And there will never be another one. You see, your concept of knives, because there are many knives, you've made a collage in your mind. Knives represent this idea. There are many human beings. So you have, you have an idea in your mind, uh, archetype of what a human being is. That's the essence of human being. All human beings share in this archetype. Allah has no archetype. Allah is singular, always was, always will be. If there was a divine knife, Paul. Now, when I say divine knife, there are no other knives. There can never be another knife. If I told you how much does that knife weigh? Whatever I say about that knife now, if it's true, it's objective. It's no longer subjective. We've reached now objectivity. We've reached something we could say this is true. We cannot deny it. It's certain. We would have arrived, as Ghazali says, because Ghazali was dying. He was looking for truth that's unquestionable. 
No philosopher is going to come a thousand years from now and question it and raise a doubt. No, 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 no. He wants absolute truth. Allah is al-haq. And we're going to get there, inshallah. There is, for him, for the truth to be, it cannot be a concept. It cannot be an archetype. Archetypes vary. They are subjective. You, Paul, you, Paul, exist as flesh, as part flesh and part metaphor. I'll give you, I'll quote you an atheist, David Hume. He says, look, human beings, Paul's mind is just a chain. Think about it as a chain, one link after another. Your mind goes through stages. Your mind is not the same as you when you were when you were five years old. Your mind has changed over time and it will change over time. It's not this one thing where there's a nucleus and I can point to it and I can hold it and I can put it in a test tube and I can weigh it and I can know something objective about it. Actually, everything about your mind is objective, excuse me, subjective. I cannot put it in a test tube. I cannot directly point at it. I don't even know where it is in space and time. Your mind is this concept and your mind is shared with other minds and there's a, it's an archetype. It's part concept. Oftentimes, I like to point to the ship of thesis. I'll give you the ship of thesis. Have you ever heard of it? The ship of thesis? No, I don't have, no. Picture, picture a ship. It has 99 parts. It's a man. The man who owns it, his name is Thesis. Every day, he has to change a part. He replaces a part every day. After 10 days, that ship has 89 original parts, 10 parts that are uh, new. Those 10 parts, he puts it in a warehouse somewhere. After 99 days, he's changed all 99 parts. And he's been sailing for 99 days back and forth. And we see him every day. Oh, there's, there's a ship of thesis. We wave to him. And then one day, somebody goes into that warehouse and takes those 99 original parts and rebuilds the ship of thesis. Mm. Now, which one is the original ship of thesis? It all depends how you, your outlook. It's subjective. There is no concrete, objective ship of thesis. There's no objective answer. Why? Because we're talking about a multiplicity of things. Ship of thesis was part, part object, part concept. Mm-hmm. Allah is not part concept. Allah is not part concept. Quran, when the Quran is telling you Allah is one, Allah is telling you I am literal. You, Paul, are metaphor. Not Allah's metaphor. You, Paul, and me, and the dunya, is metaphor. Ghazali told us, all is metaphor except Allah. Except Allah. Allah is literal. He's in a category to himself. He always was. That's what it takes to be objective. Only God can be true. Everything else is trying to be true. Everything else is trying to mimic or reach this thing called true. And we can never do it. There is nothing else, actually. There is nothing else that is true in this sense. There is nothing else. La ilaha illallah is a direct truism. It's undeniable. It always will be true and forever unchanging. It is never, even Adam when he was alone, he was not objectively true because Adam was in transition always. He was learning. He was growing. He was decaying. He was going through a process. He is... He was finite in some sense. He was limited in some sense. He is part concept. We are part concept, the whole world. And when you come to this realization, Ghazali tells you, now you've arrived. Now you've understood. Now, Descartes, René Descartes, 
he wrote a book called The Meditations. And in my opinion, he studied Ghazali for certain. Mm, interesting. Yeah. For certain. For certain. There's no doubt. Okay. I consider myself to be an expert in Descartes. Yeah, I noticed when I read Ghazali, this, uh, I, hang on, this sounds remarkably like René Descartes, you know, who's writing five centuries later, but yeah. Mm. Absolutely. So Descartes says, look, um, sorry, I'm, uh, I skipped. Sorry, I just what, was it? what were we just talking about? Sorry. After wrestling so much, I, my blood sugar drops. What, what were we just talking about? Oh, you were talking about uh, René Descartes? And, oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, excuse me, sorry. René Descartes said something. He said, look, I want to build this uh, structure and I want the f- first block. Don't forget, he was a, he was a brilliant mathematician. Mm-hmm. He was a brilliant scientist. He was a, he was a genius. There's no doubt. And I'm not using that term loosely. He, he was a genius. Yeah, absolutely. He, like Ghazali, asked, how do I know I'm not dreaming? Exactly. How do I know I'm not dreaming? Which, by the way, nobody in philosophy has ever come up with a good answer. Nobody. <laughs> by the way. But that's a topic for another day. A very interesting topic, actually. Very heavily rooted also in the Quran. Mm. Very important in the Quran. Now, Descartes says, look, I want to build this perfect structure. The first block must be indestructible. I'm going to doubt everything I know about science, math, history, everything. I'm gonna, and, until I find this one thing, the nucleus, it's got to be so perfect. It's got to be so perfect. And then I'm going to bring back science, math, history. And this thing is going to ensure that the rest is true. Yeah. And he reflected and he reflected and he reflected and he threw one thing out after another. And he was almost, he, he came by a hair to la ilaha illallah. He came by a hair. He said, you know what? I, listen to what he said. He said, I think therefore I am. If I have thoughts, I must exist. A prerequisite for having thoughts is existence. Therefore, I am. Even if there was a, a, a demon out there trying to, f- even if I was dreaming right now, I would still exist. I would know. I, I think therefore I am would still be true. It's transcendent. He said, even if there was a demon out there that if every, every time I touched something hot, he made me feel it was cold. He tricked my senses somehow, some way. Ice mm-hmm. is actually really hot and fire is actually really cold. You're just being tricked by this demon. Even if that was the case, not that he believed in such a demon. He was just saying, even if that's the case, I think therefore I am is still true. Now, philosophers, we objected to this and famously Nietzsche objected to this. He says, I am, I, excuse me, I think is a presupposition. You have never proven that part yet. Mm-hmm. Thoughts are happening to you. You didn't prove that you're the one thinking. And we found a flaw in his supposed at the time, perfect Truism. His one and unimpenetrable truth was penetrated. It was broken. It shattered. He, it was a presupposition. I want no presuppositions, Paul. I want to be presupposition free. I don't want any rose-tinted glasses. Where is this nucleus? Where is it? We're looking for it. We're digging. We're digging. We're digging. And we came to this point of awareness. Now, take away this point because that's presupposition. And what is there left? There's this one thing left. You can't deny awareness. You can deny that this thing called Paul is having this awareness. You don't know this Paul thing. You never put it in a test tube. We said Paul is a concept. Paul is a metaphor. It's all, well, what is this thing? We have direct contact with naked truth. 
This one awareness, this one awareness, Paul, has always been, always will be. It's eternal. It cannot be grasped by your hands, nor your mathematics, nor your logic. It cannot be put in the test tube. Yet, however, it is blindingly obvious and you cannot look away from it. When everything has perished, there will remain the face of Allah. This thing out there, and Allah refers to himself as a thing in the Quran. So it's not, it's okay to say Allah is a thing. This thing out there, everything is nested within it. Nothing encompasses it and it encompasses everything. Now you understand when you reread the Surah Ikhlas, you will understand that Allah He's giving you his exact description. It's a natural religion. I verify the Quran by what's innate in me. When I read the Quran, I can verify. Now, now that I have discovered this nucleus, the death of all paradigms, which is expressed as la ilaha illallah. Now I can go back into the world and I can bring back mathematical logic, scientific logic, historical logic. Now, look, I tell you, you told me earlier when we first spoke that you didn't believe I drew a squared circle. Mm. You didn't believe it, Paul. But you know what? That had a lot to do with faith. It had a lot to do with, this is a, you didn't believe it is, it's a gift from Allah. Let me tell you why. Aristotle said, guys, I have to teach you all this, the law of non-contradiction. This is what Aristotle said. It cannot both be the case that a proposition is both true and false at the same time. Imagine, imagine I said to you, I don't believe in the law of non-contradiction. And I tell you, Paul, I love coffee. And then you offer me a coffee and I say, what are you talking about? I don't drink coffee, Paul. I hate coffee. It's both true that I love coffee and that I hate coffee. You become mad interacting with me. That's what Aristotle says. If somebody doesn't accept the law of non-contradiction, I refuse to debate with him. I refuse to speak with him. If you ask me, Harry, are you taller than six feet tall? I say yes. And then you tell me, uh, do you like basketball? No, I'm too short. I'm, I'm not six feet tall. If I was six feet tall, I would like it. I keep contradicting myself. Then you would, Aristotle just washes his hands from you. He says, look, I won't, if you don't accept the law of non-contradiction, I won't debate, I won't speak with you, I won't interact with you, etc. Now I ask you, Paul, how do you know the law of non-contradiction? You actually have an innate belief. For, you cannot explain the law of non-contradiction. Now he says it's self-evident. I can't explain it. I just accept it. It's an axiom. You're innate. You're, you know the law of non-contradiction innately. What's, what? supports the law of non-contradiction your innate belief there's a there's a great video about a young girl uh, i think she's like four or five years old and they're talking to her about jesus and they're like and then jesus learned about god and then she objects she says wait a second jesus is god how can he learn about god her intuition is telling her you told me p and now you're saying not p proposition is true and untrue at the same time she she, she went back she said no wait a second her fit that i know is shining she was never taught the law of non-contradiction. But her intuition is telling her, because where is the law of non-contradiction written? We discovered it within ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's innate. All your beliefs, Paul, in the end are innate. Your belief in the law of non-contradiction, we say self-explanatory. What does that mean? What does it mean, self-explanatory? Don't ask. What does it mean? It means, hey, I have this deep inner faith that this is true. I'm drawn to it. It's my natural disposition. Now, look at your faith in science. Science, we said earlier, we put it in a nutshell. Because remember, we said math, okay? Mathematical truth. 
law of non-contradiction. You know that innately, Paul. It's a gift from Allah. We cannot ex- I cannot explain to you this axiom. We go by faith. Mm. It's self-evident to us because we are predisposed for it to be self-evident. Yeah. Animals in the animal kingdom, they have no idea of the law of non-contradiction. Mm. That child, when they were telling her Jesus learned about God, she said, wait a second. He is God. How, you told me he is God. He's, this proposition is true. How could this one now be true? They don't, her, in, her fit that is shining. Now, what about your faith in science? Science is the faith that the future will behave like the past. Mm. Allah is telling you, look at the cycles of night and day. You're so certain of this cycle, but it's really just a faith. Actually, if I object to science, the scientific world starts to, they start to attack me personally. They hate me. Not only they don't like me, they hate me. I'm not, listen, I'm the biggest believer in science. I have a strong faith in science, but my faith in science is I have a faith that the future will behave like the past. I understand science philosophically. Philosophers develop the scientific method. Not the, not the, some scientists follow the scientific method blindly. They're trained in that method. They don't understand the inner workings of that method. And I'm very open to have a, a discussion with any scientific expert out there, anybody in the world. Bring me on. We'll have a nice civil discussion. And let's look at the, the inner workings of science. How was it developed? Why is it the way it is? We could talk about from we can we could talk about from Socrates, from the pre-Socratics all the way to uh, uh, Popper. Okay. We can go from pre-Socratics to Popper. I'm, I'm more than happy to. Your faith in the cycle, your faith in science is you have, a, you have this deep fitra. Your fitra is telling you the future is going to behave like the past. Allah is telling you, look, you came from death. Paul, when you, if I tell you I woke up at 7 p.m., not 6.59 p.m., excuse me, if I tell you I woke up at 7 a.m. Mm. and not 6.59 a.m., that means at 6.59 a.m. I was what? Asleep. I was asleep. I cannot wake up at 7 if I was already woke at 6.59, correct? Correct. If I tell you I grew taller, I used to be five foot seven and I grew to five foot ten. If I tell you I grew, that means before I was shorter. Mm. If I tell you I got stronger, that means before I was weaker. If I tell you I now run faster, it's because I used to run slower. Mm. Correct? Correct. One thing is generated by the other. If I told you I die, I'm dying, it's because I'm alive. I, when I die, I had to be alive to die. Mm, Correct. Mm. When I was born, when I came to life, what was I before? In a state of non-existence. Whatever it is you want to call it, Paul. That's what I tell atheists. Whatever you want to call it, but you weren't alive. Mm. You came from death. You came from non-existence. Allah is telling you in the Quran, like I brought you once from the dust. Mm. I'm going to send you back to the dust and the cycle will repeat. Your fitra is screaming, yes, this is true. This miracle happened already. You know, if we were, picture this thought experiment. Imagine I'm sitting with, uh, we're, we're just observing the world as intellects. We're not in the world, we're just observing the dunya as intellects and we're seeing the causal chain of things happen. And we predict that, some of us predict that life one day will come to be and some say, no, there's just dead matter in the world. There's just chemistry and physics. There is no life. There is no uh, genie in the bottle. And then one day, lo and behold, there's human beings, not robots, human beings, not 
sticks and stones, not physics, physics and chemistry. This thing where you and me, we have this divine element within us, the fingerprint of God or the sign of God within us. Not that we share in divinity at all. I don't believe we are one with God. Some people say we're one with God. No, it's not one with God. Allah is one and we observe him. We are passive observers of the truth. We are metaphors that are observing the literal truth. So in this, in this paradigm where scientific truths are also a type of faith that the future will behave like the past. Yeah. Historical truth are also historical. Here's the thing with the Quran, okay? When, when it comes to history, the Quran says something. Ghazali, he, he really gives a beautiful explanation of the Quran. Now, look, look at the Quran, okay? The Quran tells you, you weren't there when the hist- stories of the, Muhammad salam, would not know the stories of the past if Allah didn't inform him. It says it in the Quran. No. You would not have known. You don't know history. You don't have supreme uh, Sherlock Holmes level of abduction and you figured out what happened in the past. No, 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 no. We had to inform you. However, how, when the Quran says something about history, Azali is asking, how do we know it's true? How does the fitra tell us that's true? Well, think about the story of, because um, remember, we're, when we read the Quran, we're supposed to do, do it through the lens of the fitra. Then everything makes sense. So for instance, Notice uh, the story of Jesus. Jesus, alayhi salam, he makes birds of clay. Mm-hmm. He breathes into them and they become alive. Mm. Now that's happened in, in, the, in history. But it's more than, Ghazali will tell you, it's not just a story that happened in the time and place. It's also, there's a theological truth. Like Allah, he made Adam through clay and breathed into him his ruh and he made him alive. Jesus sort of does that with the birds. But the Quran tells you by permission of Allah. Yeah. So Jesus is not God. That there's a theological, I can confirm you that truth right now, even though I wasn't a witness to that event. And so Ghazali is telling you, look, it's true theologically. It's also true historically, but you can only affirm the theological truth. Of course, we take the historical truth by way of, uh, of authority. The Quran is telling us, so we accept the authority of the Quran, of course. But also there's a theological truth that my fitra can now, can now uh, verify, can now acknowledge. There's mm. a theological truth. The whole Quran, the whole Quran is speaking to you through your inductive reasoning, through your uh, analytical reasoning, but most of all, through your intuitive, direct experience of the fitra, which atheists would refer to probably as the hard problem of consciousness. Sorry for my rant, Paul. I, uh, I sometimes get on a roll. Absolutely. Feel free to shut me up. No. Feel free to shut me up when I talk. No, no, no. I dream of shutting you up. Um, well, thank, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. So the, the fitra is the, the key cognitive faculty. It's the way we, we perceive the world. It's a God-given faculty. It's through that we uh, apprehend. Paul, can, I, can I ask you? Can, yep. sorry, sorry. Can we just pause for one second? I got to go check yep. on my... Uh, Yes. So uh, thank you for that. As I, as I was just saying, um, if, if I've understood you uh, correctly, that the fitra, this concept in the Quran and the, the Sunnah is like a cognitive faculty. It's a way, uh, a God-given way that we apprehend 
the world, the truth of our existence as created beings, and uh, right and wrong, the sense of justice, injustice, even the sense of this law of non-contradiction, which you say is just because it's kind of not written there in the universe. It's not anywhere out there, is it? As you say, it's but it's in our nature. It's innate. It's in our fitra and another evidence of our created status as creatures of God, if I've understood you correctly. And I, and you seem to locate that as the the, the, the surest route to certainty, epistemological certainty, epistemology being obviously the, under, uh, the theory of knowledge, how we, how we as human beings understand things, uh, how we come to know things. That, that's the surest route to uh, um, knowledge of the truth about ourselves and life, God in the universe. Um, is that broadly what you're saying? I would say brother, yes. Yes, very good, yeah. accurate description. It's something you know directly. Yes. Remember, it's the, it's the missing ingredient. Remember, we talked about Paul 2.0. He's missing an ingredient. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That ingredient, that ingredient, you have direct experience with this ingredient. John Searle says, John Searle, he says, can you imagine a zombie? We say, yeah. He says, that's proof of your consciousness. Because mm. a zombie is human being minus consciousness. Minus that thing. That thing, it doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to you. When you say Allahu Akbar, when you pray, you say Allah, you're this is a the, the gesture is I'm taking the dunya and I'm chucking it behind me. Hmm. Yeah, quite quite literally. Yeah. And the the, the hmm. self is the dunya, the I, the me, this thing, I am, me, my personality, it's all metaphor. When I was in the womb. I was incubated in the fitra. I didn't know my name. I didn't develop an ego yet. I hadn't known the dunya. All mm. I knew was this awareness. And I was incubated. That's why the, the Prophet ﷺ tells us all children were born Muslim before the Quran. The Quran tells you, tell the Christians, tell the people of the book that Abraham was upon the truth before the scriptures. You were born with a natural religion. You don't need um, somebody to tell you about Allah. Now, of course, there's many things about our deen we were taught and informed. Absolutely, yes. But to verify your deen, to verify the truth, mm. when you read the Quran, the Quran, the Islam is a natural religion and a revealed religion. This is what the Quran is teaching us. So you're, you're, making, to you're making a point, point here. It seems that uh, uh, some Kalam theologians seem to say, when we talk about before we talk about God, we've got to establish His existence by the exercise of reason, by logical proofs, whatever they may be. But you're mm -hmm. saying no, actually, this belief is prior to reason. It is instinctive. It gives us that direct apprehension of the divine. And so you're you're more in agreement with actually Ibn Taymiyyah than Kalam the the theology in that sense, because his Ibn Taymiyyah had a huge emphasis on. The yes. fitra, uh, in his writing, he hugely elaborated this, uh, perhaps more than any other um, Muslim theologian. Uh, but in that sense, you're, uh, you're you're with him rather than the the more formal. Well, we got to demonstrate God's existence rationally before we can speak about prophets, revelation, mm -hmm. and so on. And but I, I agree with you uh, that that is the Quran's teaching in Surah thirty, verse thirty. I think it is. I, I believe it. There are two ways to Allah: reason, rationale. And it's not haram. I don't believe it's haram to do this. And I want to make a point to make sure that Muslims should never state philosophy is haram. Mm. Never. It's a great mis misconception. You know, when Ghazali wrote the destruction of the philosophers or the tahafut, it means the slip up. He didn't say 
philosophy is haram. He's talking about the blind followers of Aristotle. Yeah. To blindly follow somebody is haram. Yes. Not reason. Philosophy is just a word for formal logic. If you mm. say philosophy is haram, say arithmetic is haram, say, say mathematics is haram, then go all the way, say geometry is haram. All logic, no, 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 no. Read the Quran carefully. The Quran tells you, use your logic, use your reason, contemplate, think deeply. Muslims don't think deeply enough. That's the true issue. They don't read the Quran and they don't contemplate it enough. They read the Quran and they just verbalize it. No, no, no. It's okay to have a spiritual experience. Islam is about spirituality. Islam is about an innate inner experience. There is no greater experience. There is no greater human experience. There is no greater. If you came in the world and you did everything but have this one experience, you've wasted your time. Sorry, one second. My daughter. Come say hello. Come no. say. Did you, know this one? you lost your tooth. Yes, Come say hi to Paul. Come say hi to Paul. Lost it at school. Hi, Paul. Say hello. Hi, Paul. Oh, it's a big gap there. Yalla, go play. Yalla, I'm going to see you soon. Yalla. Yalla, baby. So hey, sweet. Yalla. She wants her daddy. Close the door. She wants her daddy. How sweet. <laughs> That's my precious there. She certainly is precious. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, we were saying, uh, forgive me, I forget. Don't worry. That was much more important. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, you, you were talking about uh, having experience. Uh, if that was the only experience we had in life. Um, yes. Yes. This is, this is the most exp- important thing. It's an open secret. You know, Al-Jalani he says it's a secret of secrets. It's like this thing. It's, it's, it's there. We all see it. However, because we can't grasp it. We can't point to it. You know, everything in the world you ever learned, Paul. When you were a kid, we showed you a dog. We said the word dog. Every time you saw that object, we pointed to it. You associated the word dog with a four-legged animal. Mm-hmm. Everything you learned about the dunya. When we showed you the color red, we made the sound red. We say, Paul, we call this red. And every time we, we saw you red object, we said the word red. You associated the word red with this color. Mm. Everything in the universe. Everything you've learned except one thing. When we talk to you about consciousness, the mind, there was, we didn't point to anything. This is what sometimes philosophers refer to as the beetle in the box. You have a box and nobody can look inside your box. You open the box, you see a beetle. I have a box. Nobody can look inside it. I open it. I have a beetle and everybody's got this box, but nobody, we can't look into each other's boxes. That's, that's the mind, right? The, this open secret, this secret of secrets, you, Paul, are directly experiencing the mind, but I never pointed to it. I never put it in a test tube. I never deduced it logically. Mm-hmm. Allah is beyond this grasp. Allah tells you, reflect on your hearing and your seeing. Reflect on your senses. Allah is not something you see with the eye. Allah gave you seeing. Allah is the one who gives seeing. Allah is the awareness. Allah is the all aware, actually. Everything you've ever said or done is encompassed in this awareness. You think you've escaped. You think you've done. and Nothing is, nothing is ever lost. It's always in this one awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, think about somebody who's dreaming. Okay. The the dream the dream itself is not as real as the dreamer it's a byproduct of the dreamer we are metaphors in a dream so to speak mm-hmm. so to speak we are contingent things there but there has to be an unex, you know there has to be one thing that is objective there has to be a, one thing that is objective 
And we are all metaphor. This is what Ghazali ultimately reaches in the, in the, in the, in the Mishkat, in the niche of lights. He ends up telling, revealing his, his conclusions that in the end, all human beings are metaphor. All things, the dunya is a metaphor, every, ultimately speaking, ultimately. And Allah is objective in a category by himself. And this is known via direct experience. But only once you've stripped every idol. Hmm. See, Islam, yes, it, 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 it destroyed the idols. Yes, the Meccan idols. Yes, but we had to keep going. That was a the direction. There are many more idols to slay. There are many more idols of the mind, of projection, etc. If you read Kant, if you graduate to Kant, you know, Kant, he wrote on his thesis, Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim. Yes. I guarantee you he read Muslim philosophy because Ghazali and many other Muslim thinkers, not just Ghazali, they understood these things as projections of the mind. And I, you know, I did a little, I, I tried to research why would Kant write Bismillah? Why would he write the, 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 yeah, the opening sentence of every verse yeah. in the Quran save one? Yeah. Why would he write something so Muslim, unmistakably Muslim? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, you know, as, as I did my research, I realized that he was contemporaries with Goethe and he might have been very influenced by Goethe. Goethe was the German Shakespeare and he r- loves the Quran. He says, actually, it's our duty to believe in the Quran. He actually wrote a poem about the Prophet, salam, an amazing yeah. poem about how, yeah. the po- how the Prophet is a gushing spring on a mountain, meaning he's unstoppable and mm-hmm. everything benefits from him trickling down the mountain. And it's... Uh, Try to stop a gushing spring. Try to reverse that. It's impossible. His momentum is irresistible. He gives a beautiful poem about the Prophet Salam. And this, in my opinion, probably got Kant interested in, in Muslim philosophy. And of course, his, his ideas reflect a lot of what Muslim thinkers said in the past. Mm-hmm. That yeah, these that are was- things are a projection of the mind. It's interesting. I didn't realize he was a contemporary. I haven't connected him with Goethe. And uh, I'd often wondered why the in his PhD thesis, right at the top, it should have in Arabic the Bismillah. You know, it's, it's really jarring until you perhaps look into his, you know, he would have known Goethe, as you say, who some people think was actually a Muslim, uh, a closet Muslim anyway. Yes. Yeah, I, I think there's no doubt he was Muslim. Even yeah. though it was highly frowned upon to be Muslim. It's oh, extremely yeah, yeah. highly frowned upon. Yeah, so he, he was without been- a doubt. Hmm. He was without a doubt. In my opinion, yeah. I have no doubt he was Muslim. Yeah, many people say that he was. There's the evidence. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any type of popular objections you think atheists would bring about about to what we um, said? Well, um, there's, 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 a, there's a great deal. I mean, I'm basically in sympathy with the idealist perspective, which I think is where you're coming from. So you mentioned Bishop Berkeley uh, and and that tradition uh, of idealism, um, which we see up to people today, people like Professor Keith Ward, who I've spoken to on my channel from Oxford. He, he's one of the leading exponents of idealism. And, um, you know, they used, they used to be mainstream, uh, actually. This used to be the, the dominant paradigm in philosophy mm. in universities in the West. Um, it's not now. Material, when I studied philosophy at university um, in London, you know, analytical philosophy, materialism was the norm. You know, religion was certainly never mentioned. And consciousness was an epiphenomena. It was a, a, a byproduct mm. of a physical brain. And I remember doing a class on the philosophy of mind at UCL, University College in London here. And... Um, and, you know, it was all about how do we apprehend a patch of pink? You know, that was the example he gave. And it was like really difficult to describe how the mind could comprehend pink. I thought, 
dude, you, if you have a problem with that, how are you going to get, how are you going to understand, you know, um, Bach's mass in B minor at that time I was a Christian, Bach's mass in B minor or great works of art, you know, you, you, you don't stand a chance with your paradigm, which was materialist, reductionist. It, it, it has roots in the, mater- the material processes of the brain. And even then as a Christian, I understood that this was not going to work and we needed a paradigm shift which, funnily enough, is the name of uh, Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which I think you referred to mm-hmm. in a previous video. Very important book. Very important mm-hmm. book. Um, he's, a, he's a guy at, um, at MIT, I think, a, ph- a, philosopher, a professor of philosophy of religion. And this whole thing of, stru- of paradigm shifts, the complete revolutions in our worldviews that we've been through in science, whether it be from, uh, Newton, from Aristotle to Newton to Einstein to whatever's going to come next. You know, we go through these revolutions. Um, the reason I mentioned that is because it, even then as an undergraduate sitting in my philosophy of mind class, I thought we need a paradigm shift. This ain't working. You're, you're, you can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps. If you're trying to understand consciousness like that, you need to have a top down approach to use a different metaphor, um, which gives priority to, to mind, to consciousness um, as the origin of the physical um, which ultimately, of course, means the mind, the divine, the God, God himself. Um, so I, I'm, I'm complete idealist. I'm, I'm with you on that. And um, which is why I think the, the, the Quran, as you rightly say, it, it, um, it, it fits uh, perfectly with the natural disposition, the heart, with our hearts. It's not. Um, what did Allah say? What did, how did Allah create the world? He said, be. Hmm. He created it with the word, be. He wasn't taking this lump of this or this lump of that. He said a word. What do words, what, what are words? What are words? Words are things of mind. Mm. B is a word. Think about that. Allah started the dunya with a word. The first thing he created is a pen. To me, I understand it as symbolizing determinism which we could talk about it maybe also as well, if you wish, but a pen, this is, this is activity of the mind. Allah said, be, there are three possibilities. Either the whole world is just atoms in the void. Okay. Now the void, we can debate exactly what that means. Some, some scientists, when they say void, they don't actually mean emptiness. They mean like this. That's another topic for another day. Let's not get on a tangent. There's either just, chemistry and physics, material stuff, or there's only idea, or there's a dualism, the two. Mm. There's part physics and part idea. Now me, I like what uh, Ibn Arabi says. He says, look, I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to try to figure that out. I'm just going to say there's seen and unseen. Hmm. There's the observed world and then there's this inner world of the mind. I'm not going to say which if it's actually physical because the thing is, Physical, the word physical or materialism is another God. It's another false God. For for instance, you see this pen and you see this coffee cup. What do they have in common? Well, you're gonna, your mind's going to tell you, look, connect the two. They're made of this stuff. And this cell phone and the, every object is made of this stuff. And we're going to call it materialism, material. That's another ghost. You just invented that. That's just another concept. It's another metaphor. It's not out there in the world. Mm-hmm. It's again, another ghost in the mind. When we say kill all the idols, we're talking about the idols in the world and the ones in the mind, and then you will have an experience. 
because you just erected another God. Think about, do forests exist? Forest is just a word for a number of trees that I can't count. Mm -hmm. Forest is a universal. Forest just means, hey, there's a bunch of trees out there. I don't know the exact number. There's not something forest I can grab and put in my hand. No, it's just an expression, but we take them as literal things out there. That's why the Quran is keep telling you, do you think these things can harm you or benefit you? You're projecting them onto the world. They're uh, I, I like, I like how they're well, well, Sorry, yeah, one of, one of the examples you Pardon gave me. before is um, about the laws of nature, the laws of physics, the laws of nature. Mm-hmm. And, and you say, well, these don't actually exist. They're not actual laws. They're, these no. are placeholders, I think. They're inferred. They're inferred. I would say, I, li- I like to refer to them as, as uh, bookmarks. We bookmark, bookmark a certain pattern is irregularity. Yeah. And we bookmark that. Look, that happened in the past many times, and now we're bookmarking it. Yes. And when we see it again in the future, we're going to refer to it via that bookmark. Okay, we're marking it. We're giving it a name. We're inferring there's a law that's doing that. The truth of the matter is gravity, randomness, every force. It's never been observed. You're observing a pattern. Yeah. And then you're labeling that pattern. And then you dream up a God that's behind that pattern. So let me give you a for instance, okay? Let me give you a for instance. Imagine I take a book and you know when you fan through the pages, you see a cartoon. I draw a cartoon. I draw, I draw a picture throwing a pitch mm. on each page. He's going through the sequence. And then when I flip, you know, when you flip through the book, you see like a cartoon in action. You know how cartoons work, right? They draw one picture, then they draw another picture and they swipe the picture so fast that you think there's actual motion. Mm-hmm. Now imagine I put you in a library and there's, billions of books and you flip through the pages and you're watching a cartoon over and over again. You're watching cartoons, you're watching cartoons and you're seeing, you're studying these cartoons and you're like, Hey, the guy who wrote this, all these books, he's following certain patterns. He never breaks these patterns. Mm. And here, when he, when, when somebody throws something, it falls down to the earth. You discover gravity, you discover this pattern called gravity. But to you, it's just one image after another. It's just a cartoon. There's no actual law out there in the book. No, 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 no. You're just saying, look, he, this, this, this designer, this author, this artist, he has this signature in his designs. Every book, I've read all his books. I've studied them closely. If you give me a new edition of his book, I can tell you, look, exactly what he's going to do in this book. I know that this, as the story goes, he won't break these laws. He's never has in the past. This is what Allah tells you in the Quran. I never change my rules, my patterns. It says in the Quran, Allah's telling you, these are patterns and I never change them. But you took them as some other God is doing them, some other deity out there, some other thing that you never observed. You projected it. So if imagine you're in this library and you're studying this author's work and you're seeing these patterns over and over again, you would discover every pattern, every law of physics, it's all written in the book, but you would never take it literally. Mm. Yeah. You would never take it literally. You're like, no, that's just the way he designs things. That's how the Muslim sees the dunya. Yeah. Yes, there are these laws, but these laws are from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah controls these laws. Allah makes them, creates them as such. It's not some alien uh, uh, force. So for instance, I like to give the catapult experiment. I don't know if you've heard it before, but basically imagine I fire a catapult. You know mm-hmm. a catapult? Like, yeah, yeah. Fires a projectile. Mm-hmm. And the projectile lands on a point and we mark that point as point A. And then we're going to reset the catapult. But this time when we reset the catapult, we're going to do a divine reset. 
a perfect control. We're going to reset every blade of grass. We're going to reset every molecule of air. We're going to reset every heavenly body. We're going to reset every speck of dust. A perfect reset. I'm talking about a divine reset. Mm. And we fire the catapult again. Is it going to point, land on point A or will it land somewhere else on a different point? It'll land exactly the same place, presumably. Well, if you're, if you're a believer in Newtonian physics, you'll say, yes, it lands on the same point. Mm. Now, where is this randomness force? Where is this mysterious force that floats around in the universe that's affecting things? Mm. You tell me that there's a, this random, it's, it's, that's because of random. No, where is this force? Randomness is an expression that's taken literally. Randomness doesn't exist out there. Randomness exists in here. You're not able to give me a perfect reset. You're not able to factor in all the possible differences, every gust of wind or every deflection of a heavenly body slightly pulling in this direction now. And it's slightly, you cannot compute all these variables. So for you, it seems there's a force out there random. that's random, but actually it's not. There's no actual force. Randomness is a expression. Randomness exists as an expression that things are hard to calculate or get exact in this dunya, in this world. It's not a force out there. It's not a force out there. Now, look, there are other opinions on this catapult experiment, but it will be quite a tangent. But generally speaking, 99% of people will agree that it lands on the same point. Just like you trust the laws of physics, just like you trust Newtonian physics, you trust that randomness doesn't exist. As, as much as Newtonian physics is true, as much as scientific physics is true, as much as science is true, that's how true randomness doesn't exist. It's, equ it's equivalent. They come hand in hand. Randomness is a byproduct. It's an illusion of the mind. It's another deity. Mm. It's another obstacle between you and direct observation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Me personally, I have, no, I have no objection to science at all. I have no objection even to evolution at all. And I, I, I ask any Muslim to bring me what objections do they actually have, except their, uh, their claim for randomness. The Quran calls Allah the selector. When, when Neil deGrasse Tyson tells me that one bear had a genetic mutation and that bear was born white, that whiteness of his helped him be camouflaged in the, the Arctic. Hence, the polar bear later on, I'm giving you in a nutshell his explanation. Hence, the polar bear had a hunting advantage because he's white, he's hiding in the snow. And therefore, he thrived in nature in the, in the Arctic areas. That's how we went from brown bear to white bear, polar bear. Mm. He says it's a random mutation. That's, that's his interpretation. I'll interpret the same facts. I'll, I will notice the mutation. I will say it's purposeful. Allah selected that mutation. Mm, mm. Allah is the selector. Allah selects which animal is mutated uh, for his benefit and which one is mutated to die. Which one will thrive, which one will die. And there's a wisdom between both. His interpretation is that it's a copying mistake. I, tell, I will tell Nidhi Tyson, if you believe in a blind process, blind processes don't make mistakes. That's a human interpretation. You would say, look, it's supposed to be like this. Like Hume said, you can't get an, an ought from an is. It should have been, it ought to have been. No, no, no. Now you're talking, you're invoking God now. Hume told atheists, look, be careful. Don't say ought to be. 
It is this way. Don't say ought. Once you say ought, you're, you're, you're bringing us in theology. Neil deGrasse Tyson saying, look, it mutated. It's a mistake that actually turned out to be good. That's human interpretation. I don't see it as a mistake. I'm a hard determinist. If you're a hard determinist, which is the most hardcore science, the most hardcore atheists are deterministic. In philosophy, we say you either agree with determinism or you don't understand it. There is no alternate option. It's not a mistake. It's not a muta- It's not a random mutation. There's no randomness. This was the design of Allah. Yeah. This is how Allah chose for it to be. You are projecting randomness. You are projecting the word mistake. This is your faulty interpretation. There are no random events and there are no mistakes in the universe. There are no random events and there are no mistakes. Now, let me give you the death blow to all those who say that there are random events and that the world is just a cosmic sneeze. I'm going to give you the death blow right now. Okay. If you understand this argument, you will never believe that we are a cosmic sneeze. This is, I want to applaud Thomas Huxley for coming also, for also reaching this conclusion. An atheist is still atheist today, even though he says, look, it doesn't make sense. What I'm saying doesn't, but I, I, he says, I, he, pledges, he pledges to be an atheist for the rest of his life, for whatever reason. He's never going to change his mind. But even he agrees that this doesn't make sense. If it's true that all there is is chaos, matter and chaos, random events, mishmash of bump, things bumping into each other, and by the law of big numbers, we came to be. Just one universe after another being created and so happened that we are in the Goldilocks zone and we so happen to be in the perfect environment and somehow you have to grant them some, some magic. Life happened. Let's even give them one miracle. Let's turn our eyes and say, look, we'll even give you one miracle. You went from non-living to living. We don't know how. Biogenesis happened. Let's even give them a miracle and not say that it's a miracle. Let's turn the blind eye to the miracle. Let's say they went from Paul 2.0 it's the Pinocchio story. Some magic fairy came to Paul 2.0 and granted him he's a real man now. He's a real boy. He has that thing. And we'll turn the blind eye to that miracle that we granted them. Things are just chaos. Mm. Well, guess what? The processes in your mind would also be random events. Yeah. The mind is also, if you're telling me materialism is true and chemistry is true, the world is just chemistry and physics things bumping into each other at random. Why are you having rational thoughts? Your rational thoughts, and I love the fact that Thomas Huxley accepts this. He accepts this and he, he admits to it because it would mean that all my thoughts are happening to me. I'm not having thoughts. They're happening to me. Just like I was born. I didn't choose to be born. My parents met and they were, they were, they were created by their parents meeting and they were created by some cosmic event, some cosmic sneeze. It's all one giant random event after another. But yet you have perfectly ordered thoughts. You have logical conclusions. All my logical thinking. Why should I believe these logical things? It's just, we're just making noise. This is all, all our whole talk right now was just cosmic noise. Cosmic nonsense. All your objections and all your counter arguments is just jibber jabber, gibberish. It, it destroys the 
integrity and reliability of the scientific method, of the law of non-contradiction, of logic, it's of self-defeating. It, it completely subverts everything if you go down that materialist path for the reasons you've eloquently outlined. Exactly. It's self-defeating. Yeah. You've used reason to say that reason is untrue. <laughs> and again, our fitness says this can't be the case. Yeah. Our God given we reject this. This is this is this is a this is a wrong path. We have a fitra within us. Mm. And even the atheists have a fitra and they follow the fitra. When I ask them, oh, why do you believe in the law of non-contradiction? He can't explain. He believes it. This is an innate belief. And look at all those who believe who follow this innate belief. That's who put that's who created medicine, engineering, who, who created all the the good in the world, we had to accept these innate beliefs. Hmm. We had to accept these innate beliefs, these gifts from God. We know them directly. We see a contradiction and we reject it. But it's an innate inner experience. Now, if you tell me that's from a random event, that means everything I'm saying or doing is jibber jabber. It's all a cosmic sneeze. It's all just nonsense. But we're having a direct experience that it's true, that things are true and not true. We're having a direct experience. You, there's no interpreter between us and this experience of uh, truth, this innate experience of truth. There is no interpreter. I think so. It, it, mm -hmm. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that the, the, the radical skepticism that the atheist uh, focuses uh, on, on theism, the belief in God, is actually not extended consistently across the board. If he applied his radical skepticism um, to rationality, to science itself, to logic and so on, which he doesn't do, it would, as you say, it would destroy everything. So uh, the kind of radical skepticism from atheism is highly selective. It's targeted in one particular area. It's not consistently applied as a methodology, as an epistemology, which it should be if it was a principle across the board, because it would, it would be, as you have just said, self-defeating. Their almost religious or their religious faith in science would be destroyed. And that's what science, mm. atheists believe in science, like some kind of God, uh, to give mm. them all the answers to life, the universe, and everything. But that would be fatally undermined if they were to apply their skepticism across the board, which they don't. So th there's an inconsistency there, which... Uh, speaks of its um, incoherence, that it's not a coherent worldview, I would suggest. I, I totally agree. And the thing is, you know, science is, it's the new power of the day. Mm. Science is very influential. Why? Because it's pragmatic. It puts a roof over our head. It puts our enemies in the grave. And it puts, it puts all, it gives us the resource. Science is great because it's efficient. It, it, it helped us survive and thrive. So they love the dunya so much that say, give me more of that. They're not lovers of truth. Mm. If they were lovers of truth, Paul, they would cross-examine science. They just want to like, just give me that thing that puts money in my bank account and a roof over my head and food in my belly. Give me that thing. That's all. They, it's a power grab. That's why Allah tells them, he criticizes them. You love the dunya. Mm -hmm. You love the dunya. Scientists love the dunya more, more than anybody else. And then they claim, oh, we love truth. No, no, no. If you love truth, you would have became a philosopher. You would have asked, hey, tell me, where did science come from? What are these? Why is science the way that you would have asked these questions? You would have graduated to mystic. 
you would have had a religious experience because ultimate truth, Paul, if you continue, you go beyond science, you go beyond logic, and you reach the highest of highs. The highest of highs. You reach the veil of Allah. You reach the veil of Allah. You don't reach Allah. You reach the veil of Allah. You reach the 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 sign of Allah that put Allah put a sign in all of us. Allah gave us a window. Allah gave us a window into direct experience of himself. If you love truth so much, you climb all the way and you climb. That's why La ilaha illallah is such a beautiful statement. It's negating. It negated everything. It doubted every step of the way. It reached all the way to the highest where now you're in a point of awareness and this point of awareness encompasses everything. Now you can bring back all the other logics because mm -hmm. all the other logics depend on this secretly. Remember, we said the law of not contradiction. It's known innately. The science is known. It's the faith that the future will behave like the past. You have an unbelievable faith that tomorrow the sun will rise. If tomorrow I told you the sun wouldn't rise, you wouldn't believe me in the least. Your faith in this, the fact that the sun will rise tomorrow is so strong. Allah is telling you, contemplate on that. How do you think you know that? I put within you a trust that if something happens over and over again, you develop a security and a peace. You don't live in a random world where random things happen. You live in an ordered world and that calmed you and you know it innately and you trust Paul, you, you have no logical reason to believe that the sun rises tomorrow. Hume, the atheist, wrote a whole, a whole essay on this, mm -hmm. saying, I have no good reason to believe that the sun rises tomorrow. I have no good logical reason. I'm doing it on animal faith. But yet you, you're so certain that tomorrow you're going to see the sun rise again. Yep. That's how certain you should be in, in your fitra. And you only know this because of your fitra. Not because of your, your deductive powers. You know, philosophers, we say when you flip a coin, the odds of it landing on heads is one out of infinity. Now, when I flip a coin and I put it on heads, tails, heads, tails, I do it 100 times, 50 times on tails, 50 times on 100. Now you have an experience with, with flipping coins. You start to say, hey, you know what? It can only land on one side or the other. You're, you're reasoning backwards. However, if I erase your, your memory about flying ob objects being thrown in the air, and you're seeing a coin being flipped for the first time. And now I flip the coin, it turns to a butterfly. And I flip another coin, it turns to every time. And now you see a coin being flipped, it turned into a butterfly. You could have, it's not an impossibility. This is what we call in philosophy possible worlds. There could be a world out there that every time you flip a coin, it turns to a butterfly. And we would have reasoned, ex of course, butterflies comes from flipped coins. That's exactly <laughs> how we know mm. the dunya. It's, now I'm giving you a pretty wild example, but we know the dunya, Ghazali says, you see a cotton ball touch a flame and then you see combustion. We didn't deduce logically combustion. We had to see cotton ball, flame, combustion. We repeat it, cotton ball, flame, combustion. The first time a human being touched a flame, he burned himself. He knew now fire burns. Before that, he didn't know. He could not have deduced it logically. It's impossible. Believe me, I can tell you, take this to the bank. I'm a, I've been studying epistemology for 20 years. I don't care if you're Aristotle and Einstein. or You cannot deduce that fire burns until you've burned yourself. You know, we say our kid's never going to learn until he touches the hot pot. He'll never believe us. It's not deducible rationally. 
Unless you're relying on someone else's experience and history of being burned by fire, which is this, it's just the same thing, but extended to another person. Then I have to have faith that he's telling me the truth. Exactly. To, exactly. It's, yeah, it's yeah. always based on experience. It's the based dunya on is based experience. on experience. Yeah. Now, the dunya is perfectly ordered. The world is perfectly ordered. Things happen in a cycle. Allah tells you in the Quran all the time, look at the cycle. The, the earth, the grass dies, the rain comes, it rains, and the, earth, the grass revives again. Mm-hmm. Like that, I'm going to bring you back to life. The mm-hmm. cycle, notice the cycles in nature. Why are you so different? Why do you think when you die, you're not going to cycle back to us? Why? You, went, you came from the dust, you're going to go back into the dust. You think you're not going to cycle again? All these cycles are happening around you of life and death, mm. the, the water, all the, the whole world is a cycle after another. You see a whole egg and then you see a scrambled egg and you ate breakfast. And then tomorrow you have another egg. And this cycle of eggs from whole to scramble, from whole to scramble, you're seeing cycles all around you, every which way. But yet you think that the atheist, they tell us, oh, when you die, it's the ultimate end. What a foolish thing to say. How do you know a, a, what a universe a universe in maximum entropy, when the universe is completely destroyed. How do you know what maximum entropy does to a universe? You've never observed a universe in maximum entropy. Mm. When the universe reaches maximum entropy, whatever that may be, how do you know it doesn't start all over again? You don't know. You're hoping it doesn't start all over again. Guys like, Famous, I don't even want to mention their name. I don't want to make them more popular than they are. But atheists, when they say that, oh, we believe that when we die, it's all over. You're wishing it's all over. Why? Because they love the dunya. They want to have this dunya and not worry about the consequences. There are leading philosophers. I think it's Thomas Nagel, who's a, a, a professor of philosophy, uh, has said on record that he, w- he doesn't want God to, to exist. Exactly. Uh, for his own personal reasons. He actually desires right. the, the non-existence mm-hmm. of God. Uh, and there are other atheists who have said the same, that these are not people who reach this conclusion through abstract reasoning. They have a profound need and desire uh, uh, for God not to exist, and they choose not to believe in his existence um, for their own personal reasons, um, moral reasons, or other reasons. So, um, and this, this is a, often not, not understood that many atheists actually don't want God to exist. Uh, because it would be inconvenient, it would uh, entail moral obligations they don't want to undertake, and so on. So it's a, a, a motivated atheism based on desire rather than a more objective view. They want to be the center of attention. When you're an atheist, you're, you're the center of your own universe. Mm. When you're a theist, Allah is the center of the existence. Yes. yes. It's a type of selfishness. You chose, I always tell people, the Quran tells us, you choose hell. Allah casts you in hell, yes, but you chose hell. Mm, mm, mm. You chose to be separated from Allah, and being separated from Allah is the greatest hell. If I separated you from your loved ones, you'd think that's hell. You're wrong. Wait till we separate you from Allah. Then you will know what's hell. Then you will know what hell is. Because if you think being separated from your loved ones is difficult, wait. Wait until Allah, he removes from you all his mercy. This is the narrative of the Quran. Allah is the center of our attention. They make atheists want to make themselves the center. The Pharaoh made himself the center of attention. So there are theological truths also. We didn't touch on that. Okay, but there are things the Quran is telling you 
that are theological truths, and you can be certain of those via your intuition. Mm. The story of Noah, you know, Ghazali will tell you, look, it's literally true. I agree with it. It's literally true. But there are also theological truths that we can verify. The historical truth, I take it on faith. I'm not even interested in go out archaeology and try to figure it out. I'm not even interested in that. I don't think it's maybe I don't have the powers of abduction. I don't think even all of humanity can figure it out. We don't know what happened in the past. I think there are many things we assume that happened in the past, but we're actually wrong. And, you know, we're going to have another scientific revolution like we've had many. And lo and behold, I'm going to be surprised like the rest of us. I don't have such a high regard for human intellect. I think human intellect is great. It's a valiant pursuit, but I don't trust even my own logic. Aristotle and Plato, they didn't agree. Schopenhauer and Heisenberg, they didn't agree. Einstein didn't agree that Isaac Newton's time is an arrow in one direction. He didn't agree. If he did, if he didn't disagree, if he didn't challenge Isaac Newton, he would have never discovered uh, the relativity of time, theory of relativity. We Experts don't agree. Do you trust your math? If you had this long, complicated mathematical problem, would you, wouldn't you want your 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 fellow mathematicians to cross-examine you, check my math, you know, you can make errors in logic. I don't trust my logic. I don't trust, I don't trust my own intellect. I believe in my intellect. I'm not a perfect logician. I'd have to be God to be a perfect logician. I try my best to reason, but ultimately I have the answer. I have a cheat sheet. I was, all of us are blessed with the answer. It's innate. Your innate Intuition cannot be wrong. It cannot be wrong. Like, for instance, if you stub your toe, you're walking into a dark room and you stub your toe. You don't know if you stubbed it on the chair, the library, the, I don't know, whatever furniture you have, uh, your, a child's toy, whatever. But you know you're in pain. Mm-hmm. That's a direct experience. So the Quran says, Allah, when he casts you in hell, he says, here's for what you used to deny. Now you cannot deny pain. Den- pain is direct. No philosopher ever burned himself and said, hmm, is pain real? No, we never ask that question. We ask every question, but we never question direct experience. Philosophers, we even question, does one plus one really equal two? You know, we actually have these discussions and it might sound like we're crazy. We may be be crazy. We doubt everything, but when we burn ourselves with fire, we don't say, oh, maybe I didn't feel pain and it was an illusion. No, 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 no. Mm. This is the ultimate truth. That's why hell and heaven are the ultimate. Hell and paradise are the ultimate truths. Mm. Mm. This is direct. It, this, it's no illusion. We see the world backwards. We see people say, oh, God, good and evil. That's all metaphor. No, wrong. Allah is literal and we are the metaphor. Mm. Mm. We are the metaphor. We are the ones who are part concept. Like, like we we're talking about earlier about the divine night. What is a night? You know, if you read the 40 books of Plato, it's a lot of it is what is the essence of something? And we can never find what the essence of anything is. What is the essence of a cup? We never really grasp it. It's all this metaphor. It's always something so elusive. Mm-hmm. Yet there is this one thing we have all innate experiences, this fitra, this direct experience that cannot be denied, it cannot be interpreted, and everybody loves to take it and mix it with something else. That's what the Quran is constantly telling you. Do not partner Allah with anything. And that, that by the way, is, is, the, is the problem with a lot of atheists that I've spoken to and read about, is that they assume so much 
as as given as objective. They assume, for example, that solipsism is false. That they're not just their own individual unique consciousness and everyone else's illusion. They they assume the existence of an external world. They assume the existence. Uh, the reliability of reason, as I say, they assume the existence of, I can go on and on, there's a whole list of things which they they assume self-evidently are just true. And then from that, they launch their attack. And I'm saying, but you, you, you haven't established that minds independent, that minds independently of your own even exist. You have not given me proof that the external world exists. You've not shown me why reason must necessarily be true and accurate when it is working. All these things are just um, taken as self-evident and axiomatic. And then from that, they move. And I'm saying, so you can't assume all this for the reasons you said earlier on. You basically, this is... um, you're asking for an epistemological blank check here. You can write whatever you want on it. And they haven't part, doubted have all that. Uh, well, now, now we'll move on. <laughs> I've just given you all this wealth. And we'll just pretend that it's just naturally there. <laughs> and you haven't just been given it free of charge. We'll just assume all that. Yeah. Thank you. And now we'll talk about, I think, excuse me, you know, you got all this wealth because it was given to you. Um, don't just assume it argue for it. And you can't actually argue for it, Mr. Atheist. You can't demonstrate it at all. You are acting, as you have said very eloquently before, you are acting on faith. You, Mr. Atheist, are acting on faith that all these things are real, true, objective, and solid in some form. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you argue. But I'm sorry, you can't do that. In philosophy, you've got to be able to at least exhibit and be explicit about your assumptions. You can't just smuggle them in and say, right, now I'm here. Let's go to business. No, you can't do that. That's not how philosophy works. You've got to uncover your assumptions. You need to be aware of them and not just smuggle them in and then start from that because there are no self-evident truths. You've got to argue for them and account for them and not just take them for granted. And that's what atheism does, except in one area where it focuses its firepower on the existence of God. And I'm saying, well, again, as I've already said, that's not consistent, not consistent at all. They accept certain presuppositions, yeah. and not others. Yes. The mystic has killed every presupposition. <laughs> None, no presupposition is allowed here, Paul. No presupposition. Like I told you earlier, I don't say any more material or mind i say seen and unseen the quran it says in the in ayat al-nur it says the light of allah it's not from east or west it's not from east or west when you reach this point of awareness there is no east or west east and west are nested in this awareness where is this point of awareness there is no referential point other than it. Mm. It's not east or west. The Quran says the most beautiful things when you interpret it in the light of the fitra. Mm. The Quran is speaking to your fitra, to your intellect, and to the worldly observation you have, the world of the senses. Yes. Allah is talking to you, even Allah is talking to you about history and his and theological facts, but these are all. These are all supported by your fitra and none of them, no, not even your logic, not your science. None of them are outside of the fitra. None of them. The fitra supports them all. 
Your belief in the law of non-contradiction, fitra. Your belief that the future will behave like the past, fitra. Your belief in theological understa- theological uh, understandings, fitra. You cannot escape it, Paul. Mm-hmm. If you've if you haven't killed every presupposition, you have not had a direct experience with this truth. Mm. That's a type of poverty. Mm. La ilaha illallah is where every, when you're a Muslim, what do we tell you to say? First thing. Bismillah. No. La ilaha illallah. You can say, Ashadun la ilaha illallah, Ashadun Muhammadullah. You're going to take the shahada. No. You're building your, your tower now. Where do we start? Why do we start with the shahada? Before we even ask you to pray, well, you have to do shahada first. Mm. It's the start, but you're giving me lip service. Even Paul 2.0, remember the robot we're talking about? Mm. He can give lip service to shahada, but does he understand the shahada? He can never understand it. He has no subjective experience. He has no inner experience. Allah says in the Quran, I made you from dust and soon after, Behold, you're human. What does this mean, human? You have to ask yourself, what does it mean? I'm human. Dust is not human. Allah created you, fashioned you, but you're still not human. Mm-hmm. What is it about you, Paul, that makes you human? Allah's telling you, they don't even reflect upon themselves. The, the Quran is telling you, they only see the appearance of things. Mm. They only see the world as Paul 2.0. Everything is machinery, chemistry, and physics. You know, uh, one man said something so arrogant. I forget. He's a famous atheist. Hitchens. Hitchens. He says, I don't have a body. I am a body. Think about that for a second. I don't have a body, he says, because that would entail there's something else to me. He says, Hitchens says, I am a body. And I forget who said, I think it was John uh, Lennox. He said, well, how did you survive your death? Because when you died, your body's still there. All the components, all the parts. If I told you, hey, your cars, all the parts are there. Where is that thing now that's missing? That we say you're dead, you've transitioned. Prop him up. Well, he used to move. Prop him up, move him around. No, he's not moving by his own. Why not? Oh, he's missing uh, electrical signals. Charge him up. Shock him with electricity. What's wrong with it? Why is that body there, but he's not there? Mm-hmm. What is it about him that he went through a transition? Remember, we said human beings are part concept. Human beings are part metaphor. That lump of flesh was always going through transition. We are metaphor. Ghazali said it best. You know, Ghazali, he says, only Allah exists. We're not only monotheistic. We're a monoism. We are mo- meaning only Allah exists in this particular category. Allah exists in this one way unique to him. Me and you exist as a shadow, a metaphor, a concept, almost like a dreamer, the characters in his dream. The dreamer is not the same reality as the characters of you. He's a higher reality. The dreamer depends on him. The mind, your mind, my mind is a type of reflection. It doesn't belong to us. We are here to observe it. You're having a direct observation of Allah. When you die, Paul, that mind that you're observing will still exist. The face of Allah will always exist. It existed before and it will exist after. Now, I'm going to give you a beautiful argument by by Immanuel Kant. Oh, yes. Immanuel Kant says this. He says, look, this is a transcendental argument. He says, are there going to be squared circles after you die, Paul? 
No, no. There are there are truths out there that existed before we before us and after us. Mm. But these truths, these analytical truths that we talked about earlier, they only exist via mind. But you admitted that they're indestructible. Plato agreed. We all agree they're indestructible. But they existed eternally. So there's this eternal mind, Kant says. Remember we said Allah started the universe with B. B is a product of mind. Mm. Allah is talking about the realm of the mind. When I write with a pen, I'm writing, I'm putting these symbols. It's for a mental activity that I'm expecting you to go through. The word B is a mental issue. It's a mental process. I don't, I don't like to say, I don't agree. I don't necessarily only say that we're, the world is ideal. I say, like Ibn Arabi, I say, look, keep it seen and unseen because we don't know. We can't say. We don't have, uh, you know, something in the philosophy called the egocentric predicament. Maybe we don't get into it now because it's quite long. But we don't have direct experience with the dunya. We can't go outside our minds to check, to verify. But long, long story short, all we're certain of, what we can be certain of, is that there's a seen world, an observed world, and an unseen world. This we can be certain of because we're having direct experience of it. The Muslim philosophers, they went beyond logic and they said, look, we want to know what we have direct experience of, what we cannot be wrong about. And we want to kill all presuppositions. That's why if you look at the, 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 the Greeks, they only had one mystic. I would say Parmenides was really the only mystic. Maybe Pythagoras also, possibly. I, I, again, we don't know 100% of their philosophies and what they were. And the Arab philosophers were great mystics. All of them were mystics. The British empiricists, not really. They flirted with it. They got close to it, but they never became mystic. I think Kant almost reached mysticism, but not quite. I think even almost uh, Schopenhauer almost reached mysticism, but didn't. He faulted at the end. And I think it had a lot to do with the byproduct of their time because you have to understand when the plague hit the church and it killed the church, it weakened the church, science rose. They didn't want to go back to religion. Mm. Whereas the Muslims, religion and science went hand in hand. The stronger Islam was, the stronger the religion was. They had the golden age together. There was a sentiment of we have to strip the power of the church. So don't give them any religious talk. Don't reach mysticism. You'll bring them back in. There's a, you see, the scientists in the West, they hate their religion. They hate the religion they came from. Mm-hmm. Even though their, fa- their forefathers, uh, Isaac Newton was incredibly religious. Galileo was incredibly religious. They were, they were mystics. They were mystics. Uh, Isaac Newton was a mystic. Isaac Newton on his deathbed rejected the Trinity. Mm. Are you aware of this? Oh, he, he had spent most of his life writing against it. We now know this was, uh, wasn't made public during his own lifetime, of course, because he, he suffered severe consequences. But uh, Correct. it's well documented now from his private writings that he was uh, a passionate Unitarian and he had a particular horror of, uh, for him of the Trinity. He thought it was a terrible doctrine that was false to Jesus Christ and so on. That's a different subject, but yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, but he, he also rejected the Trinity. He was, but he was a mystic as well. I would say he was a mystic. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, in mysticism, you cannot have three. Paul, let me. I want you to. I want you to explain to me the number ten. What is the number ten? Imagine I was a child. You explain to me the number ten. Go ahead, explain to me. Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I would basically count from one upwards and say that. No, no don't use the number one, please. You're, you're, uh, you, you cannot use the number one. Maybe you're going to say it's five and five, but then I'm going to ask what? you, what's five? 
depending on how, how young the child was, I would basically get 10 objects out on the floor, say 10 um, toys or something and say, this is what 10 looked, you know, I'd give, I'd make it visual and, um, you know, quantifiable visually. But you'd need the one. Mm. You cannot have the 10 without the one. No, oh, I see what you mean in that sense. No. So you'd say, look, there's five and five makes 10. Well, what's five? Well, five, well, five is five ones. Mm. What's a what? You have to uh, fundamentally, you have to explain one. To explain 10, you first have to explain one. To explain 0. 0.5, you have to explain one. Everything refers back to one. Mm. Before you had two, because two is one and one. Everything is trying to be a copy. Everything is pointing back to the one. Mm. Every road leads back to God. Let me, tell you, let me just tell you something. Every road, whether it's math, arithmetic, science, history, philosophy, theology, it all, reach, it all returns back to the one. Now, even the pagans, they talk about paganism came first. Impossible. How could you have known of one or two, uh, two three, four gods if you didn't know about God? You took Allah and you copied him and you made a, a likeness. You partnered to him. You started with one. You started with this nucleus. You started with this awareness. We all started from this one awareness. And then the contents of this one awareness, we made into multiple gods. We added to it. We, we increased from there. We didn't start from zero. We didn't start from non-existence. We started from one. That's why Allah, he's constantly saying he's one. When Allah says he's one, he's telling you I'm literal. Mm. I'm literal. Remember, everything that's multiplicity, you, you Paul, are a, a byproduct of many things. Your body is made of all sorts of cells that have changed over time. You're the ship of thesis. Remember the ship of thesis in 99 parts? Yeah. You're a bunch of parts that are changing, morphing. You're part concept, part material. Part seen and part unseen. Allah is only one. He's not in the category of seen and unseen. He's not this juggling act, this metaphor. There's no metaphor to Allah. He's only pure truth. He's objective. He's the, Actually, he's the only objective thing. There is nothing else that is objective. Other things have levels of objectivity. There are no truly objective things outside of Allah. Everything else has a level of objectivity and subjectivity. There are always a mix. Remember Berkeley's Triangle. Hmm. They're always a mix of objectivity and subjectivity. Hmm. We never have perfect objectivity until we kill every presupposition, we kill every paradigm, and we're left with a, a state of awareness, a taste that we, we see directly, we experience directly. And this is what, guess what, Paul? That's a religious experience. Hmm. You're not having a logical experience. You're not having a scientific experience. You're not, definitely not having a historical experience. You're having a religious experience of truth, ultimately, this thing we're always looking for, this thing we keep talking about, this thing we talk about like it's right here on the table, but when we try to ask you, where is it? You never find it. Mm. This thing is a religious experience. Like it or not, like it or not, Paul, truth is a religious experience. You start with the Shahada and you work your way from there and then you get to mathematics and then you get to logic and then you get to science. It all starts with this religious experience and that's what the Quran is telling you. If they don't reflect upon themselves, you think this and that is true and this and that is good. You didn't even start. You didn't even reflect upon yourself. You first had a religious experience of truth and then you explored it and, and deduced it into the world. 
And the ultimate expression of this is sujood. Hmm. The head now is lower than the heart. Not the lump of flesh, as Ghazali says. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. I was given the answer. My intellect couldn't reach you. My intellect couldn't encompass you. It can point to you. It cannot encompass you. It's the ultimate it's the ultimate expression of this. And lo and behold, it's in the Bible. Even Jesus makes sujood. Even Abraham does sujood. Moses, they all did it. Yeah, it's the ultimate expression. You cannot do any other expression. There's no other way to physically enact it. So when somebody is in prayer of Allah, you know, when I, when I teach people prayer, I always ask them, when I teach them, what's the difference between you and that rock? Well, oh, there's this, in, yeah, this is when you, when you pray, pray from here. Like this is where it is. Ghazali tries to point to it as well. He talks about not that lump of flesh, but that thing, that beetle in a box that we all know, but we can't point to. Allah is not the thing you see. Allah gives you the seeing. He gave you this awareness. And it's in the Quran. It tells you, reflect upon your hearing and seeing the, the faculties you have. The thing that Paul 2.0, the robot we made a while back, he'll never have. He will never have. Even uh, Thomas Huxley, he admits. He says, it's the same as if I rub a lamp and a genie comes out. This is not my words. These are not my words. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is a man who's, <laughs> they call him the... Darwin's bulldog, right? He's defender of Darwin. So, um, you know, I mean, in a nutshell, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell, very good. No, well, thank you very much indeed uh, for that extraordinary um, um, uh, philosophy, narrative. It was a, a discussion. Um, I, I, won't, I won't attempt to summarize it because there was, there was so many nuggets <laughs> of um, uh, truth in that uh, for us to reflect on. And um, I like the way you brought it back to the Quran constantly. I think that's a, a great thing to do. Um, and um, well, all I can say is just thank you very much indeed for your, um, your thoughts and reflections and your philosophical acumen and knowledge, um, which um, many people, many of us, my, myself including, can benefit to to hear and learn from so um thank you very much indeed for your time thank you and i want to say look i know i didn't give a formal speech on the different theories of truth and this is a, what is truth but i wanted to give something more uh, tangible for people who are not formally trained in logic mm -hmm. uh, i find that philosophy can be intriguing and and it can strike the heart if done correctly yes but lo logicians they like to formalize it Mm -hmm. And Ibn Arabi says, look, they're teaching it. It's like a, a dead man teaching a dead man. You're learning your knowledge as nuts and bolts. As, but knowledge doesn't start from here. Knowledge starts from direct experience. That's why knowledge starts with a religious experience. Mm. You're having a religious experience. The analogy we give about the robot, he's not having a religious experience. It's if then, if this, then that. Mm -hmm. That's not human. Mm. When you pray, when you read Quran, remember from this point, this is where you have to approach the Quran, from this point. This is a gift. This is a gift that each human being has. Mm. Not some human beings, each human being. And inshallah, the Muslims, I, I hope that they will take this and, and continue. And don't be like, other groups who deny logic, reason, and science. Ghazali says we have to harmonize the natural sciences and Islam, not reject either or. And 
yes, science can be transient. It is transient. It, it can change over time, but we're always trying to harmonize them. We're never rejecting it. Never. Mm-hmm. And if there is a, if there is an issue, you know, I don't want to get too much into what Ghazali says because I know I get a lot of friction, but there is a way sooner or later it's going to be harmonized if there ever is an issue. And it's up to, it's up to us raising our thinking, our level of thinking. Muslims have to raise their level of thinking. We're coming in an age where information is being spread so fast. You can no longer just read, not understand, and prop. No, no, no. You must understand. Muslims out there, I beg you, raise your level of understanding. The problem is not the world around us. The problem is us. Our understanding is weak. I've met very few Muslims that understand the concepts in the Quran. I've met very few Muslims that understand even the, the most the very important. And some are trying, yes. But it's time for the Muslims to go and hyperdrive. I hope this, chat, I hope this episode was a good starting point. But there's not, if, you're, if you're a true believer, there's nothing you're scared to read or learn mm-hmm. or cross-examine. Because now you have certainty. Me, I'm telling you, there's nothing tomorrow in science that's going to be discovered that's going to shake my faith. There is nothing. Paul, when I go to the grave, I, I, I don't believe in Allah. I know Allah. There is nothing that's going to scare me. I, I fear Allah. Yes, I fear to go in the grave. I fear that I've done too many. I've done more bad than good. This is I fear. Yes. But I don't doubt Allah in any way. I fear Allah, but I don't doubt him in any way. Once you get to this level, you will never worry about what some scientists said. You will never worry about Doc- yeah. When I read Dawkins, I laugh. To me, he's a, he's a, he's. I'm telling you, his arguments are childish and moronic. Yeah. Bring me his greatest defender, mm-hmm. whoever has mastered his arguments. Bring them. They're weak, childish, and moronic. I'll even use the word moronic literally. I'm not trying to attack the man. Mm-hmm. His arguments are daif. Yeah. Weak. Yeah. Yet he sold millions of books. Why? Because people want a permission to be atheist. It's time for Muslims to go to the next level. There's no excuse. And once you understand the fitra, there's no argument in the world that will shake you. No argument. Inshallah, this is a a good starting point for a, a video. Inshallah, it'll it'll uh, it'll inspire others to Inshallah. you know. Inshallah. Okay, well, we'll we'll leave it there. But thank you uh, so much indeed for your time. And um, uh, um, I hope uh, people can leave their comments in the description below and um, follow this discussion up. But um, uh, I'm not going to say summarize anything you said because it was so rich and detailed. Uh, um, But um, just thank you finally again very much for your time. And um, uh, and thank you Uh, until until next time.